get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. to the front of the net and on the backhand a glove saved by Bennington denying Voronkov and then some rough stuff as Voronkov followed it to poke after the Blues goaltender they move it in Bennington the save he denied Sillinger on the doorstep Goudreau now to Wierenski Wierenski back door they score they get it over to Voronkov on a turnover by the top line at the top of the offensive zone circle, Tori Krug slaps the puck ahead all the way on Golmers. Leakins is there to make the save, and the Blues' winning streak comes to a thud tonight in a 1-0 shutout at the hands of the Blue Jackets, who had not shut out a team all season long. Man, you can't get much worse than that. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns, I'm Brandon Kiley. You got BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Just an embarrassing performance. There's no other way to put it, man. It was an embarrassing performance last night, coming off of five straight victories. Everybody's feeling good. I heard Jamie Rivers, I was listening to the fast lane yesterday, and he put it, I thought, very well. He said on the fast lane, you're going to learn more about the Blues tonight against the Columbus Blue Jackets than you did in their five-game winning streak, because this is where it gets hard. You're going up against a terrible, a genuinely horrific team. And they have nothing to play for. They're going to play that pond hockey. I remember talking to Joey in recent years where he says, the teams that are actually really difficult to play against are not the competitive teams because they're going to play within their structure. It's it's the bad teams. It's Anaheim. It's Columbus. It's Chicago. Because they're going to go out there and you have no idea what they're going to do. They're just going to be out there cherry picking all day long, right? Well, that's not what this was either. Because Columbus didn't have a whole lot of interest going out there and playing a lot of hockey last night either. Neither of those teams wanted to be there. All you had to do was show up. And you have two points banked in the pocket, ready to go for you. A six-game winning streak going into the break. Everybody's feeling good. Robert Thomas is sent off to Toronto. He's getting asked questions as he's at the All-Star game. Hey, your Blues, the resurgent Blues, once again, you just can't kill these Blues, right? A few years ago, worst team in the NHL at Christmas break. And now suddenly you get to the second half of the season. They go on to win the Stanley Cup. Are you guys doing it again? Those are the questions. That'll be surrounding Robert Thomas and the Blues heading into the All-Star break. But instead, instead, they get shut out against the Blue Jackets. It's the first time Columbus has had a shutout all season long. The Blues 21 shots on goal last night, fewest by any opponent against the Columbus Blue Jackets so far this season. Columbus had allowed a goal on 24 of their previous 70 penalty kills. 24 out of 70. That is a 40% power play percentage. That would be historically great. The Blues go over three on the PP. And the first one was bad. I didn't get in the zone. If ever there was a 1-2-3 Cancun performance, that was it last night. And I hate saying it. I want to buy into these Blues, but man, they make it really hard to do when you got a performance like that. Yeah, that that was probably the worst hockey game I've ever seen in my life. And that's not even as much a shot on the Blues as is also the Blue Jackets, because that was awful. You know, I know how bad that hockey game was. 
every morning after a Blues game, and I do this during the Cardinal season as well, I go back and I rewatch the highlights just to kind of refresh things in my mind after sleeping. To get to the 10-minute mark so that Sportsnet could make money on YouTube, you know how they have those cutaway, like, 10-second blurb ads where you get, like, some ads on Bally Sports and West? They had to keep that in the highlights <laughs> so that they could reach the 10-minute mark. That's how bad that game was. That that was the ultimate 1-2-3 Cancun-type game where you could tell that you couldn't even circle anybody in that game. And even when you have duds in a season, you can typically say, like, hey, at least this guy was out there playing well or this guy was out there playing well. Nobody played well last night. I'll give Bennington credit. Bennington showed up. At least he stopped the few pucks that he saw. But outside of that, yeah, that was the ultimate one, two, three Cancun game. And that's why this one, that is really going to sting over the next, whatever it is, 10, 11 days until they're back on the ice. Because you're right. That's two points you cannot take for granted when you're sitting right on the fringe of that playoff spot. If you were top in the Central Division, you know what? If that kind of game happens, that that's okay. You're, you've got a cushion. There is no cushion for the Blues, and that was a critical two points that they let slip away last night. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line to get involved in the show. You guys can also watch us on YouTube at youtube.com slash 101ESPNSTL. Somebody from the uh, 314 says, guys, they're just not shooting the puck. These numbers are unacceptable. So this is where not even nerdy fancy numbers. Shots. Shots on goal. Let's go with that one. I think that's been around in the NHL for a while, right? Right, T-Bone? We can, we can all agree. Yep. This is not me getting into my Corsi ratings or anything like that. Shots. Here are the Blues' shot attempts since January 6th at 5-on-5. Five five. 18, 18, 15, 19, 27. Lost that game, actually. 11, 21, 22, 14, 12, 18, 17. The vast majority of the time, they are not putting significant numbers on the net. And the reason why I have been so skeptical or quizzical, I guess, would be maybe be the right word because I, I it's hard for me not to buy in when it happens so many times in a row. But this is a really hard way to win what the Blues are trying to accomplish. And so last night, like they didn't play well. And you could watch the game and you could see, OK, they're just they're not really into this thing, man. Like it. They had no sustained offensive zone pressure. There was no net front presence. There was no nothing. Like, there, yeah. it was just two teams kind of, it was two ships passing in the night. And at one point, a puck went in the back of the net for Columbus, and I think it was by mistake. But that <laughs> was it. Like, that's the way that the game was played last night. But when you play the way that the Blues do, you are relying on a otherworldly shooting percentage to sustain and otherworldly goaltending to sustain. And if you don't get one of those two things, oh, by the way, and an outlier performance on the power play relative to everything that we've seen from these players over a two-year stretch, if any of those pieces falls apart, shooting percentage, power play, or the goaltending, you have nothing else that you can rely on right now to be able to win you hockey games. And so that's why... Despite the five-game winning streak, despite them having a top 10 to 12 winning percentage under Drew Bannister, it remains really difficult for me to see the Blues as a legitimate contender. Now, the Western Conference around them is not very good, and so they're going to skate by, and they're probably going to be in contention for a playoff spot the rest of the way. But games like last night are the kind of thing that will keep me... I'll have my toe in the water, I'll, I'll dip my foot in, and I might even at times, like, get my waist all the way in. Oh, you 
getting but frisky. I'm not going like full willy nilly cannonball into the pool right now with this team. I they they haven't allowed me to do that just yet. I won't put my toe in. I've heard the water's cold. I and it's because of those numbers you said on five on five. And I said it yesterday before the game. I, I said I don't know if this is sustainable because yeah. five on five. I, I don't know if I fully believe in the power play. It's been really good over about a 20-game stretch now, so maybe I should buy into the power play being somewhat fixed, but when you have to rely on switching gears to now having to, hey, the only way we can win games is if our power play is clicking, and then we just hope that our goalie saves our bacon at 5-on-5, five five, that's not sustainable. That's, that's not how you get into the playoffs. you got to start playing better at 5-on-5. Five five. I, I was a little surprised. The manager didn't break up the lines last night, but I, I think he kind of read the room and was like, you know what, they're not trying. I don't even really care, so I'm not going to break up the lines. And you could tell that was the most disappointed he was about this team since he's taken over. So I do want to play a piece of audio. This is from Brandon Saad last night. T-Bone was hot this morning about this quote. I think I disagree with T-Bone a bit, but here's what Brandon Saad had to say after the game about a trend that seems to be showing up for the Blues when they go up against poor opponents. Well, I think it's a little bit different. You know, we've come a long way, I think, since the start of the year. And, um, yeah, we lost to, uh, to another bottom team, but they're all still NHL hockey players, so they can win hockey games. Maybe a lack of focus or things like that we got to touch upon. But as a team, I think we're playing better. So that was Brandon Todd last night when asked by Jeremy Rutherford about the Blues losing to bottom of the rung teams this year. They lost on November 16th to San Jose 5-1. They lost on December 8th to this Columbus team 5-2. They lost on December 9th back-to-back games against Columbus and Chicago. Woof, I wonder why they fired their previous coach. 3-1. And then they lose last night 1-0 at home against Columbus. Four losses against legit bottom-of-the-barrel opponents in the NHL this season for this Blues team. Now, T-Bone, I would actually defend Brandon Saad on this. I do think they're a different team today than they were in early December. I don't think they play down to their opponents as often as they did in early December. But you had a very different takeaway from what you heard from Brandon Saad last night. What was your takeaway from that? Uh, they are the same team. They still don't show up when the bad teams roll around to town, as I saw last night. And uh, honestly, the part where he says, you know, I think we're playing better. Are you? Your 5-on-5 five five stinks. You're lucky to have a five-game winning streak going into that one, in my opinion. I don't think they're a different team. I think they're the same team they were under Craig Berube. Ooh. I think maybe the compete is a little bit better. But that's not saying much considering what I saw under Craig Berube. And that's not a shot against Craig Berube because I think Craig Berube is a great head coach. I think those guys gave up on Craig Berube. I I don't think they're the same team. I, I really don't. And last night was the first time you witnessed such a clunker under Bannister's watch, right? Th- I think th- that- That's where I would push back, too, by the N- way. No. I th- That is their first full clunker. Okay. They have not showed up for a lot of first periods and a lot of first and second periods. The, so, so that's the first full clunker we've seen. The it's fact- not like it's the that, first no, time. It's, it's not. They got destroyed by Florida. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that game. Um, <laughs> In Tampa. Yeah, so, see, it's not their first clunker. It's just been more rare. Even in the five-game winning streak, like, we look back on that Calgary Flames game. The first two periods, they weren't there. Drew Bannister said, like, at the time at postgame, like, yeah, you know, we didn't skate in the first and second period, and we kind of got away. We kind of woke up in the third. No, That's the same team. That's the same team they were under Craig Berube. And this is where I have to, like, it's, it's hard to analyze this team because everything you're saying is impossible to disagree with. 
And yet, I also have to give them credit for finding a way to come back. Because that's the difference. The difference between the team they are now and the team they were under Baruby is they would get down 3-1 to one after two periods, and then they'd just stop playing and they would lose 6-1. to one. Under Bannister, and I don't know if this is a credit to the players, to the coach, probably a little bit of both. Instead of stopping and just saying, you know what, didn't have it tonight, boys. Let's go out, have a couple of beers afterwards. We'll try to get them next time. Instead of saying that, they actually go out and play in the third period. And they try to come back. And sometimes they do come back. And so they have that skill in their bag, mostly because their power play has been better. And so they're coming back with the help of a solid foundation on the power play. So is it a different team? I don't think so. Not, not fundamentally. Like if you look at any of the underlying numbers, Better goaltending, better power play, slightly better shooting percentage, but otherwise basically the same team as it was under Craig Berube. So those things matter. Those things translate into winning as we've seen. Is it something that you can have as the foundational piece to a playoff team? I don't know. My honest answer, it's the worst answer for sports radio because you guys want me to come on here and be definitive. They are making the playoffs. They are not making the playoffs. And my honest to God answer today is, I don't know if you can win this way. I want to find out. And I think that what we're going to see over the next three weeks or so as we get closer to the trade deadline, man, this team doesn't have assets that are meaningful at the deadlines. Like, they're not going to be out here saying, hey, here's Vladimir Tarasenko, Ryan O'Reilly, Nola Chari, Nico Mikla. They don't have that this year. So don't worry about any of that. Over the next few weeks, what they're trying to do is convince Doug Armstrong, bring in a third line winger. That's what the team is playing for. And we will find out early on in this month of February, Buffalo, Montreal, Toronto, Edmonton, Nashville, Toronto, New York, Winnipeg, Edmonton. That is their schedule coming out of the break. The 10 game stretch or so right there, that will tell you everything you need to know about whether or not Doug Armstrong but should be adding to the roster that he has currently. Well, I think Bannister himself gave you a window as well into that shaky foundation last night. He himself referred to a lot of the play, that influx once again of the creative stuff that didn't really come to pass, some of the cutesy stuff. If that is what you're seeing night after night from a litany of different players, how can you possibly expect any degree of consistency? You can't. 11.17, your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll get into some NFL quick hitters. We'll get to questions and answers at 11.45 as we do each and every day. Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, will join us coming up at 1.30 for his final segment prior to the NHL All-Star break coming up next is Alec Burleson now in the role that Dylan Carlson had at this point last year and if so what does that mean for the Cardinals heading into the season are they just gonna have this jumbled mess in the outfield once again we'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN we're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN look at the Braves lineup they're loaded they can beat you in, in a multitude of ways like this one exec was talking about they also have guys that go to the post every single day they know what their lineup is they have stayed relatively healthy they've they've had a bunch of guys on on the IL throughout the course of the year but it's been more pitchers than, than hitters what they built is incredibly impressive and if we localize and say how did the Cardinals create a roster like the Braves you're no you're nowhere close you're not you're not in the same hemisphere as what the Braves are. And you have to stop mixing and matching like the Rays and Giants do. 
I like Anthony Stalter. I respect Anthony Stalter. I disagree with Anthony Stalter, and I don't think there's any way for the Cardinals to build the way that the Atlanta Braves did. Alongside T-Bone and Bradford Bruns, I'm Brandon Kiley. So last year, the Atlanta Braves, to Stalter's point, they did have guys that posted every single day, man. Ozzie Albies was out there for 148 games. He's 26 years old. He plays one position. He's a borderline gold glover at that position. Austin Riley played 159 games last year. He's 26 years old. A super solid third baseman. Does not have positional versatility, though. Only plays that spot. Does it pretty well and hits a ton. One of the best players in all of Major League Baseball. Michael Harris, the second. One of the best true center fielders in the game right now. By the way, he's 22 years old. He plays center field. He knows exactly what his role is every single day. And then Ronald Acuna Jr., one of the best outfielders in the sport, one of the best hitters in the sport, I think should have been announced as the uh, cover boy for MLB The Show, neither here nor there. We'll get to that another time. He played 159 games last year, had 735 plate appearances on the season, knew exactly where he was going, knew exactly where he was going to be in the lineup, those are the guys that were the stalwarts for their lineup last year. It was really those four pieces. Now, Tanner, the difference between the foundational pieces for the Braves and the foundational pieces of the Cardinals is age and experience. The Cardinals' foundational pieces on the more experienced side of things are Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. Now, you remember the ages that I mentioned for these guys, right? 26, 26, 22, 25. Those are in their prime of their career types of players. Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt both have back issues, both play on the corner, and are both getting up there in age. Now, we don't have to like it. We can refer back to yesteryear when this wasn't the case, but those guys are going to get days off this year. That's going to happen. I can promise you. Again, you don't have to like it, but that will be the way that the Cardinals operate. Goldie will get one day off a week, whether that's a DH day or an actual day off. Same thing will be true for Nolan Arenado. And when those days happen, Alec Burleson's probably playing first base. You're probably going to see some Nolan Gorman at third base this year. You're probably going to see some Brendan Donovan at second and or third base on those days. Why did you not mention Mark's name yet? He's not playing. I hope. Oh. We'll see. So that's the way that they're going to operate. Now, on the other side of things, you have Jordan Walker, who is transitioning to a new new spot in the outfield and was awful defensively for most of last season. Got better at the end of the year, but needed work days. So when he gets those work days, what do they do? They put him at DH on those days so he can, in the words of Ollie Marmel, I can't even say what he said would happen before the game, but he would get a lot of work in with Willie McGee before the game. And that is how he's going to get better. So you have him at DH on those days. And when he does, you're going to put probably Dylan Carlson in the outfield because he's solid defensively or Alec Burleson in the outfield because you want his bat in the lineup against a right-handed pitcher. So T-Bone, I don't think that the Cardinals are in need of this stable lineup because I don't think they can have it yet. When you get to a place where Paul Goldschmidt is no longer here and maybe Nolan Arenado is like either an everyday DH or is just only at third base and he's the one guy that's getting the ev- like once a week day off kind of thing or if Nolan Gorman is only your DH because his back issues have precluded him from being at second base every day then sure you can have that everyday everyday lineup that Stolter's talking about but until then it's just not something that is achievable regardless of your manager now this brings us to the Alec Burleson conversation 
Because I think Burley is the guy, along with Brendan Donovan, that gives you that flexibility. And I wonder, is it almost too much flexibility? Because going into the season, the Cardinals have stated how excited they are about what Alec Burleson can be for them. They still believe he's a, a really good player. He was a t- top 100 prospect a couple of years ago, guys. This is not some, like, fluky thing where he's a Moises Gomez, where he had a big season and it was like, whoa, okay, do we have something here? Or uh, like Luke Voigt, who, hey, it's happening at AAA. We don't really have a spot for him. Maybe we should trade it. No, Alec Burleson was a big part of their plans and has arrived. And so as a left-handed hitter that hit 330 in AAA two seasons ago, he's somebody that you would like to get into your lineup on a regular basis. But you don't really know how. You're not really sure where he fits into your lineup. It reminds me a lot of what happened last year with Dylan Carlson, T-Bone. Where early on in the season, it was like, all right, we've got our three outfielders. We feel good about it. We do still have this Dylan Carlson piece, though, where he was a cold, dead hands guy for us. Is Burleson now where Dylan Carlson was at this point last year? I I kind of feel like he is because hearing the Cardinals talk, it sure sounds like they still like feel like they have to get him at bats. And I think that's how they felt about Carlson last year was, hey, though he is the fourth outfielder, he's still a starter in our eyes. So we've got to find a way to get him at bats. And then it was like, hey, this one guy goes cold for like a game, two games. It was boom, Carlson's all of a sudden inserted into the lineup. I hope that that's not the case with Alec Burleson, but I do feel a little bit of that vibe to where it is, hey, we still have to find him at-bats and find him at-bats on a consistent basis, not just like, hey, that day that Goldie's out of the lineup, boom, Burleson's in there. Or, hey, that day that uh, Donovan is off, say he's, in, or say he's in the outfield or whatever reason it is, Burleson's got to be the DH. Like, I still feel like they are at least giving off the vibe of they have to force some at-bats for Alec Burleson. And I hope that it is not the case and that though I still think there's a chance for him to develop and become a league average player offensively at the plate, if they're going to go with this whole mindset of a starting nine and they're going to kind of stick with somewhat of the same lineup, or at least that's what they're saying, Burleson cannot be forced into at-bats. And that's what I am a little fearful that we're going to see from the St. Louis Cardinals. The projection for 2024, when you look at Burleson and think about the way in which Carlson was viewed last year, it feels very much the same. Role definition could be very similar. But here is the difference. You think about Carlson and the way in which he has been envisioned as more of a do-everything guy. The athleticism can be a solid defender, play in multiple positions in the outfield. For Alec Burleson, it's really quite simple. You want to see that ability to grow into a consistent live line drive hitter, somebody who can go, as you said prior to the show, BK gap to gap, and you want him to just go out there and hit baby hit. But from where are those opportunities going to come? It is a real question. Yeah, I mean, that it's the question. And... The question is, how does the manager want to play it? Like, does he want to get him into the lineup as an outfielder? According to everything that I heard while I was out at winter warmup, there were some blunt conversations that took place with Alec Burleson where, like, Burley was pretty open and honest about it where he said, like, hey, listen, like, it hurt to hear some of the things that they said to him about how he needed to get more athletic because they essentially viewed Alec Burleson as unplayable in the outfield last year. And the only reason he was getting opportunities out there was because of necessity. And T-Bone, how many conversations did we have with people around the team that said like, hey, listen, look at our outfield defense right now. Every single one of our numbers suck defensively in the outfield. And part of that was because Burley wasn't great out there. And if we're being honest, Walker was worse for most of the season than Alec Burleson was in the outfield. Now, by the end, and his upside's way better. Um, Walker, you could see arm, athleticism, everything. It's it's there. It's it's about 
trying to get more opportunities and getting more comfortable out there. Burleson just might not have the ability long-term yeah. to do it, and that's what they're hoping to find out going into spring training. But they believe Burleson can be a really solid hitter, like a guy that can hit 280, 290 in the big leagues, and maybe he doesn't have this crazy high on-base percentage and doesn't hit for a ton of power, but can be a Matt Adams type of hitter for them. And I think that's what I'm curious about. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. T-Bone, if I told you that for the next six years, Alec Burleson is for the Cardinals what Matt Adams was for the Cardinals. So Matt Adams in his first season, he wasn't great either. He was a 245 hitter, finished about 20% below league average. It was minimal opportunities. That was when he was 23 years old back in 2012. And he was a big part of that 2013 offense that I always reference that is similar to what the Cardinals are trying to, to kind of groom right now with their core group of players. Matt Adams in 100 games hit 17 home runs, was a 285 hitter, 30% above league average, and then basically for the rest of the time here in St. Louis was a slightly above league average hitter from the left side. Would you sign up for that if that is what I told you Matt or Alec Burleson can be for his career here in St. Louis? Yeah, I, I would sign up for that because I, I think that was a win. Like I, I don't view Matt Adams as being like, uh, oh, he didn't develop into what the Cardinals wanted. No, that was a win for the Cardinals at first base, and he was solid defensively at first base. And I think Burleson's solid defensively at first base. But I don't know if you can get an Alec Burleson to that without playing him. And and that's why, like, as much as I would say, yes, I would sign up for this, and yes, that would be great if he does develop into that, what does the future look like and what will his role be? Because this year, it's tough to envision him getting enough playing time to start to continue to develop towards that, unless you maybe send him down to the minors. But at this point, I don't think he has anything to prove in the minors. Yeah. And that's kind of the conversation they said about Yvonne Herrera, where it was, hey, he's got nothing to prove in the minors, so we're going to non-tender Andrew Kisner, so he's here at the big leagues. And he'll get at least one start out of every three games, I would assume. So I would sign up for it. I don't know how you get him playing time to develop into that. Now, maybe if you know they've talked about Goldschmidt's future being uncertain, maybe he's the starting first baseman next season. And if that's the case, okay, I can see then what the plan is. He's a bench bat this year. Not so much worried about his development, but by next year, you're really hoping he can really take the reins and be the starting first baseman. But if Goldie's going to end up getting an extension, and I still kind of expect that, I don't know if it'll be in season, may wait till the All-Star break or even after the year. I, I just don't know if Burleson can get to this point. And that's when I would say, like, hey, he should be a trade chip for the St. Louis Cardinals. So much of this all comes back to how do the v Cardinals view Matt Carpenter and Dylan Carlson? Yeah. Because that has a trickle-down effect on how they view Alec Burleson. Like if, you, if they are as high on Alec Burleson as they suggest that they are, then Carpenter should basically be your backup center fielder. Nothing more. That's it. His entire role is, I am replacing Tommy Edmond when Tommy Edmond needs Carlson. a day off. Carlson. Excuse me. Do, who did I say? You said Carpenter, and I was a little worried about him being Dylan Carlson should be the backup for Tommy Edmond, where if Tommy Edmond needs a day off, Dylan Carlson is in center field for you because he's the only other player on the team currently capable of playing in center field. And that's it. If one of your corner outfielders needs a day off, that's Alec Burleson's opportunity. If your first baseman needs a day off, that is Alec Burleson's opportunity. Matt Carpenter, your role is, if we got nobody left on our bench, you're going out there to pension. And that's it. There is nothing else. If Tommy or if Mason Wynn is getting ready to go up to the plate, it's the bottom of the ninth inning, and we have already emptied out our bench, and it is a right-handed pitcher on the mound. Carp, this is your opportunity. 
That's it. That that is your exact role is in that specific spot to go give us a better at bat than what we would expect from a rookie in Mason Wynn who's hitting from the right side. Nothing more. And if that's the role for Matt Carpenter, cool. But if they start early on this season going to Matt Carpenter in bigger spots than Alec Burleson, or they go to Dylan Carlson in the outfield, it's like, okay, maybe you guys aren't as high on Alec Burleson as you're saying, because all of this stuff that you're doing with these other players, it's the kind of stuff that you would do if you're pushing this guy down. And what you end up doing is you depreciate the asset again. And that's my biggest fear for Burleson this year is we get through the end of the season, Burley barely plays, and he is next year where we saw Juan Yepes get to after last season. Remember Juan Yepes this time last year where we were talking about, hey, you should probably trade him because you don't have a role for him because you just signed Wilson Contreras, who when he's not in the lineup at catcher, you're going to have to use him at DH, and you're going to DH Nolan Gorman, and you're going to DH Paul Goldschmidt, and you're going to DH Nolan Arenado. Where are these Juan Yepes opportunities coming from, guys? Somebody please show me because you got all these outfielders. There isn't a role for Juan Yepes on this team. And they just said, oh, we'll be fine. We'll get value from him. It'll be cool. We just want It'll all these guys. work itself out, We want BK. position players. It's fine. Everything's good. And it wasn't. And now they lost him for nothing. Fine, whatever. That's that's a much lower stakes loss. Losing Alec Burleson's value is real because this was a top 100 prospect that hit 330 in AAA two years ago that now will have gone basically two full seasons at the big leagues with almost nothing to show for it. And now another team's going to be able to add him on the cheap, potentially, because you didn't do anything with the asset, either to help your major league roster over the last two years, which is opportunity cost, or to go out there and actually use him the way that you wanted to. So that's my biggest thing with Alec Burleson. I think he is a fundamental piece of the decision processes that will take place in 2024 for the Cardinals. Coming up next, NFL Quick Hitters here on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasts Podcasting platforms, and you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. it's time for some NFL quick hitters with T-Bone and Bradford on BK. So what are the biggest questions heading into the offseason for two of the teams that were just eliminated? We'll get to that question coming up later on, T-Bone. But right now, I want to get to this. A coaching decision that was made yesterday that at first I hated and I've changed my mind on it. I've changed my tune. Arthur Smith is going to be the next offensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers. T-Bone, as I sat on this and I thought more about it, I think it's an excellent hire. I don't think Arthur Smith is a bad OC. I think Arthur Smith is a terrible, awful, no good, very bad head coach. When you put him in charge of everything, I think he loses his marbles. I think he gets completely sidetracked by everything else that is going on within the organization. He becomes incredibly defensive. He has to talk to the media too much. He's not comfortable very clearly in those situations. When he was just the OC for the Titans, you think back to those offenses that were run first, but highly energized by the play action passes, deep shots over the middle. Those are some good offenses, man. 
and you think about what the Steelers personnel is, what they have available to them with that two-headed monster at running back. I actually think this could end up being a really good fit between Arthur Smith and the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think it's a massive upgrade from what they had previously. I didn't like it at first glance because I'm like, oh, yeah, the jokes name themselves. Arthur Smith is going to be the next offensive coordinator that gets fired in Pittsburgh because he's terrible. I actually think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I still don't like the hire. I, <laughs> I I watched him in Atlanta, and it'd be one thing like you know if he was speaking to the media, he was calling the plays, and he had a great. I think he, I think that Atlanta squad had a really good offensive cast. Now they didn't have the quarterback, but still some of the things that he was calling and the way that they were operating and not getting Bijan Robinson involved early on. I don't know. I I was not a fan of the hire. I because I I would like to see more of a forward thinking offensive mind go after somebody that wants to kind of throw the ball and not run it like Arthur Smith. So, I, but does Mike Tomlin want that? Because I would say no. Mike Tomlin, I, I don't think, wants to throw And this the ball. is where I would raise a question, and, you know, it's the Pittsburgh Steelers. They love having consistency. Is Mike Tomlin still the guy in Pittsburgh? It's grown pretty stale in Pittsburgh. Has and it, or has he not have, had a um, a quarterback? I, I think both. I think both. I, I mean, don't get me he wrong. He has not bottomed out the way that Bill Belichick did in New England, for Fair, example. but I don't think Pete Carroll bottomed out, and I said it was probably time for change in Seattle, Sorry. and they decided to move on. So, I disagreed with it there, and I disagree with it here. I don't think you should be even considering moving on. He won 10 games this year. With Mason Rudolph and the corpse of Kenny Pickett <laughs> at quarterback this season, uh, they th- that's a team that I think needs to stick with their coach. I I think this is an okay way to go about it. And they're trying to minimize the quarterback. Like, that's very clearly what they're trying to do, and they kind of need to because they don't have an answer at quarterback. BK, in I theory, like I, I like what you're saying there. Now, Arthur Smith did have prime Derrick Henry in 19 and 20 in Tennessee. And here's the thing. It comes down to how much confidence do you actually have in the Warren-Harris tandem in the backfield. And also, Pickens, Pickens and Johnson must develop so much further as well. In order for any of this to really work, you have the nice tight end as well operating underneath. I think that everybody has to elevate the play there in the Steel City. Yeah, I think it will work. I, I think it'll be fine. Um, I don't think they're going to have like a top 10 offense in the NFL, but I don't think there's any OC Who, they could have hired. That who's would've. the quarterback that fits this system perfectly? Is it uh, you just bring in Tannehill? Do you bring in Russell Wilson? I think Wilson's Russ actually is probably a really interesting one. Intriguing. I, I don't know that he throws across the middle as much as you're going to need to in this offense. I, the guy is probably Justin Fields, honestly. He, he's the one that Makes fits sense. it the best because then you get the running ability out of him that would match well with his philosophies. He's willing to throw across the middle. He's got a cannon where if you want to take those deep shots coming off of play action, he fits really well with that. And you're not going to rely heavily on him as a passer. So I, I could see Justin Fields. I think Justin Fields makes a lot of sense for Pittsburgh for a million different reasons. He fits the ethos of the team. He's tough as hell. He's going to go up there. He's going to run. They've had running quarterbacks at times in their past. And I know sometimes this gets overblown of like the style of quarterback that you've had in the past and can't work in the future. But a lot of cold weather games in Pittsburgh, I think he makes a lot of sense there. So I, I could see something like that working. All right, next up, there's a lot of broadcasting news that's going to take place this offseason. We saw yesterday Tom Brady started his old master plan of getting back into the the uh the public limelight with interviews all over the place announcing a new a new venture that he's doing with his business side of things and talking about how he's all in on the broadcasting thing okay all right we'll see so he's for sure gonna be the partner next year for kevin burkhart for those that aren't familiar he signed a i think it was a 10-year deal worth like 370 million dollars with fox 
He decided to have what is essentially like a, a gap year between his playing days and his start of his broadcasting career to get everything in line with his personal life. Fair enough. That's his power. Well, in that gap year, Greg Olson became a tremendous broadcaster, dude. He is awesome on that team with Kevin Burkhart. And if I'm Fox, I would not want to break those two up. But they have to because you paid him $375 million. So Brady's going to get that job. T-Bone, what do you do if you're Greg Olson? Because we've seen this in the past. There have been times where a guy would opt out of his contract or would get traded from one network to another despite being under contract. What do you do if you're Greg Olson? I, I mean, I would think that he's going to at least explore the idea of being traded or opting out of the contract. Or he may just play this one out. I don't know how long his deal runs with Fox. And then when he hits free agency... He's going to be a big get. And the spot that makes all the sense in the world and the problem that kind of persists for Greg Olson is what's the number one job that's becoming available? Because, like, Fox has got Brady. Romo's got a big contract at CBS, although they probably would love to get out of that about now. Aikman is locked in with Joe Buck at ESPN, and they're a great duo, so you're not going to break them up. Amazon Prime, they need to work on their broadcast, but I don't know what the deal is for Kirk Herbstreet. So I think Olson's plan will probably be, okay, I'll – I'll accept this for now. I'll go down to that number two role. That sucks. He doesn't get a postseason game. Exactly. Which is terrible because he's fantastic. You're yeah. right. Hmm. And I, I think he ends up I think he ends up at some point moving to Amazon. When Amazon is ready to move on from that the sucks Michaels. Too, he doesn't and get good games. Those games stink. Yeah. <laughs> they're Thursday night. They're terrible. I, I wonder they haven't they haven't said this they we've seen Fox and CBS try this. In fact, I think CBS has a three man crew. I wonder if they I would do, consider I would not it. do that. I, would I wouldn't either, that. but I Those wonder if work. they'll try it. They I wonder work. if they'll try it. When was the last time we saw one of those where we were like, this is good. I enjoy this. This is great. I'm glad we have three guys in the booth, especially when you think one of them is good. If you've got two guys that, like, need somebody else in there as analysts where they're just going to give you a little bit here or there, like uh, Jason Garrett. Jason Garrett's terrible. He is the worst color commentator you will ever hear. His broadcast that he did on the Chiefs' first postseason game was so freaking bad, I muted it by the end of the game. It was terrible. Unlistenable. (laughs) And so if you have two guys in there with him, you can put 12 in there and just pretend like Jason Garrett's not in there and have him as a part of the broadcast. That's fine by me. But when you've got somebody as good as Greg Olson, I want to hear his insights. And there's only so much time on these broadcasts. I think his best role is what you're saying, T-Bone, where it's just Joe Davis is a really good broadcaster. And he's the number two guy right now, number two play-by-play voice for Fox. So that's the probably the best case scenario for you if you're Greg Olson. But I think that speaks more to the lack of options elsewhere than it does anything else because he's in the spot right now that Mike Tirico was in when he first went to NBC where he's just, like, stuck on the pregame show. And if you're Greg Olson, like, maybe that's the other alternative route you could do where you go with Fox for the the number two broadcast team and then in the postseason you're probably on the pre- and postgame show. A little food for thought. He had originally inked a five-year deal with Fox, and should he go from number one to number two, it is a $7 million annually. Pay cut. Oh, that's mm. brutal. Ten to three. They'll, they'll make that good. Yeah, mm. I, I, I wonder too. And this would be sticking around where he just kind of sits around at the number two for a while. I mean, I love Chris Collinsworth, but he's getting up there as well. He's sixty-five years old, so I can see where do like, with him what you did yeah, with Tariko, where you bring him in, have him wait a year or two, and they'll probably end up with more games as well. I mean, they had that what, NBC three pregame show already has twenty-five people on it, though. You can't put one more. <laughs> it's not very good. That so contract's up soon upgrade, but as I, well. I can see where maybe they do that, or he just waits until Collinsworth retires and then he makes the yeah. leap. It, it's tough spot. 
tough spot for him. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up at about 15 minutes or so, T-Bone asked me an interesting question yesterday. The Cardinals need to improve by at least 15 wins this year to have any real shot at making the postseason. How often do we see teams do that? Is that a rare occurrence in Major League Baseball? We'll get into it coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, let's get into some questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe it's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for questions and answers. If you guys have any questions, go ahead and get them in right now on the Air Comfort Service X line. We will get to those right now. From the 314, guys, who do you think is the best analyst going right now in sports television? If you could name one, who would you go with? Oh, that's good. Um, I think I would go... I think I would still go with Collinsworth. I, I think Collinsworth is fantastic. I, I think he's the best comment. I think he's the best analyst going. And I'm like, I'm trying to think of the other sports, like baseball. I'm not sure there's like a number one guy that stands out to me. I think BT does a great job on the Cardinals yeah. broadcast, but I don't think there's a national one that stands out to me as being really good. Do you like Smoltz? No. no. Um, <laughs> we know. I, I would say Collinsworth. I think he's the best national analyst going right now at any sports level. I think Greg Olson. I genuinely believe Greg Olson is the best one going right now. Um, when I watch his broadcasts, I learn from him. I think he is unbelievably prepared. If you listen to him on the first drive for each team, he will spell out what the game plans are. You don't see that from other broadcasters that are going right now because they want to they want to hide what they learned, and they're going to use those over the course of the game. Not, mm-hmm. not Greg Olson. Greg Olson in the first drive for the Lions on Sunday, if you were listening, he told you, they are going to try to run at their defensive ends because they don't believe their defensive ends will stay committed towards stopping the run. The Lions did. And the Lions did that. And over the course of the first half, it worked. So I I think Greg Olson is really freaking good, man. And I hate what's happening to him right now, and it sucks. He was just, by the way, on Dan Patrick's show who said, quote, I'm not in the business of making demands. Like, Greg Olson's going to be a, a good soldier with all of this, and he's making a bleep ton of money, so it's not like he's getting completely screwed here. But professionally, it sucks, so I think he's the best one going right now. To me, the tiebreaker is the substance, and you're getting that in spades from Greg Olson. He's not holding anything back. He's not playing some sort of a parlor game. But I don't understand when it became so in vogue a couple of years ago to pile on Collinsworth like you, Tebow, and I still think he's very, very competent and nice at the job, too. All right, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line from the 314. Guys, do you believe that the outfield as a whole will be better offensively, or do you have any one outfielder you expect to exceed what he has already done offensively in the past? I do think the offense is going to be really good in the outfield, actually, this year, specifically with Newt and Walker. I think both of them will exceed what they have done in the past, especially Walker. Um, and I think Newt just the hope is he stays healthy. His offensive production has been fine. There's nothing wrong with what Lars Nupar has done when he's been on the field. You hope for more consistency and you hope for more health. And if he can do that, like if he can do in the, the first half this year, what he's done in the second half each of the last two seasons, and he stays healthy, you're loving what Lars Nupar has been. Yeah, I, I think the outfield offense is going to be really good because like when you talk about Tommy Edmund, you're talking about a, a like a league average hitter. 
when you look at Walker, like I expect him to add more power to his game this year and be better than just 14% above league average. And I, I think you're right with Newpar. I think Newpar, like last year, he finished 15% above league average, but he played the same amount of games as Jordan Walker. And Walker had a stint down in the minor leagues. So it's health for Lars Newpar. So I, I think the offense for the outfield is going to be really good. And I think defensively, I think they're going to be better defensively. I, I truly believe Walker's going to be a, at worst average in the outfield this year i think he's going to be above average and once edmund is entrenched there in center field in order to have that alignment that you want running with three guys primarily in edmund walker as well as newpar the health has to be there you just want to see newpar out on the field for more than 114 117 games and if what we saw in august and september it's any indication of the progress from jordan walker given all on which he has worked during the offseason too i'm excited not only about the offensive production but the strides to be made specifically on the defensive side. All right, from the three one four guys, what do you think of the NBA's rule that requires players to play in at least 65 games in order to get postseason awards? Seabone, we were talking about this a little off air. It's become uh, something that's come under scrutiny because some of the guys are upset about this, apparently, as we're getting midway through the year. We're now 50 games in, and guys are like, oh, no, I, I might not hit the threshold. This is so bad. I have no problem with it at all. I remember I used to, li- I, I still do, but I used to listen to Zach Lowe, who does an excellent NBA podcast, and he would talk about this in the past, how he was conflicted about, hey, do I vote for a guy for an MVP award that's played in 60 games this year? Like, can you really be the most valuable player when you've only played in three quarters of the games for your respective sport? Like, it, think about this from the NFL's perspective, right? If a quarterback played in 12 games... The odds of him winning the MVP are almost zero. Yeah. If you go to Major League Baseball and like barring a Shohei Otani type of performance, if a guy doesn't play in at least 120 games, they're not winning the MVP. (laughs) The only place where this was actually even possible in the past was really the NBA. And so now the league has come in and stepped in because it was such a problem with this load management stuff that they were like, hey. Listen, if you don't play 65 games, you can't get a postseason award. And if you don't get a postseason award, it's going to potentially affect your contracts because that stuff is hugely affected in the NBA compared to other sports. And so this is going to incentivize players to participate in the sport, which feels fundamental to the sport. So, no, I I have no issues with it whatsoever. 65 games isn't an outlandish number of games to have to play and i i think it's more than reasonable i have no problem with it yeah I, i'm with you i have no problem with it because you're basically asking guys to play in not even 80 percent of games it's at seven right at 79 percent. so right. i i have no issue with it and the fact that guys are coming out and complaining about it look man if you can't be in 80 percent of the games you're not the most valuable player i i i'm with you i i find it ridiculous that they even had to put this kind of rule in place to try and incentivize guys to get on the floor because they're missing with just minor things. They're sore. They're out. And, and as much as people talk a bunch about Gorman's back and how he has to sit out a lot, man, Gorman posts 117 games. And you're not seeing that in the NBA. Those guys hit the injury report. Odds are they're out. And it could be just something as load management. It could be something as a sore knee. And then they are just out. And it, it got ridiculous to where the NBA has to put these rules in. I have no issue with it whatsoever. So I do have one exception that I would make for it. And I mentioned this to you earlier. I I like that they have this for MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, etc. All-NBA first team, I'm good with it. For the second team and third team All-NBA, I have no problem if you don't have a requirement for that. Sure. I think the first team All-NBA, you got to play 65 games to be able to make that. 
below that, if you want to talk about like the second team, third team, if you want to get into the less than 65 games played, like if Halliburton this year plays in 60 games, he's ineligible for first team. He's been one of the 20 best players in the league this season, though. And if you want to reward him for being a third team all NBA player for doing that, that's fine. But not not first team. You don't get first team because you didn't play in the requisite number of games. So that, that would be the one change that I would make to it. It's just second or third team. You can still get on that with fewer than 65. Don't you find it pretty amazing that a guy like Kawhi Leonard, for whom this sort of mandate was created, all of a sudden this season he's playing on a nightly basis again, isn't he? He's healthy. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, you give us two different scenarios. We'll tell you which one is more likely to happen. But next... T-Bone asked an interesting question yesterday because he was looking through the uh, in MLB win totals. And for the Cardinals, it would require them to get to 15 more wins than they had a year ago. How likely is that? Let's look at history as our guide. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. We got some breaking news for all of our St. Louis City SC fans out there. 101 ESPN breaking news alert. St. Louis City SC head coach Bradley Carnell has signed a contract extension with the club. As far as I can tell in this press release, T-Bone, there are no announcements on exactly how long this extension will run for, but it's well-deserved. The guy has clearly built a foundation within the club. Last year, it was... Really frustrating with the way that the season came to an end, but nobody expected them to get to that place. I remember at the beginning of the season, T-Bone, you and I looked at the odds of what St. Louis City SC was expected to be from Vegas, and they were expected to be the worst team in MLS, and it wasn't close. And if you look at the recent history of expansion clubs, there was reason to believe they should have been terrible. Most of them have been really bad. And then when you heard how they were describing the way that they were building. They were like, hey, listen, we're going to build from the ground up. We are not going to bring in any stars. We are bringing in guys that fit with the culture of the club. And those are buzzwords normally for, hey, listen, bear with us. We're not going to be very good early on. But if you stick with us long enough, we think this is going to be the right way to build a sustainable winner, which is fine. I have no problem with building that way. It's probably the quote unquote right way to go about it, especially in MLS in a market like St. Louis. And fans will stick with you even if you struggle early on. But they got good quick. And it was because they bought into Bradley Carnell's system and they bought into the way that he wanted to play from day one. And it took the league by storm, dude. They had no chance against that press early on. And then as the league started to adjust, the St. Louis City SC team started to adjust and they had to play a little differently and they used their midfielders a little bit more. So it's he is well deserving of this contract extension and it's good to hear that he's going to be in here for the long haul yeah you're 100 percent well deserved i mean when you finish 56 points the second most by an expansion team in mls history and based on what you just said is what kind of we all expected where they'd be one of the worst teams it's really impressive and, and i think the part that you mentioned about the team kind of taking on his identity mm-hmm. that's the thing that really stood out to me was when he i remember when he was talking about you know we're going to play fast we're going to play quick we're going to come at you it's going to be 100 percent all the time i'm going man i don't know if guys are 
are going to enjoy doing that, especially when they got to play in the summer heat here in St. Louis. And sure enough, they did, and they did adjust to it. And though the season was disappointing in the end and the end result in losing in the first round of the playoffs, he was well-deserving of this contract. So good for Bradley Carnell, and hopefully he's here for the next couple of seasons for City SC. We're going to talk about the Cardinals in the next segment, but I, I do want to stick on City, actually, for, for a moment. Believe it or not, <laughs> it's something that I actually do want to do here. Um, how much of a concern is it to you, T-Bone, going into the season that you got Jao Klaus, you expect him to be hopefully healthy this time around, and you got Big Sam, but you don't have Nico this year. He's going to be transferred over to a club in Italy. That's something that has been processed over the last few days. We haven't talked about that, but it is a pretty significant departure from the team. T-Bone, I am a novice when it comes to this stuff. That means that City can't have Nico back this season, right? Like he yes, is he is going gone. to Italy. He's done with St. Louis City SC. Yep. That feels like a significant departure when it comes to your offense for a club that has serious health issues that it is relying upon for that that top striker when it comes to what they had last year with Zhao Klaus. How how much of a concern is that for you going into the season? See, it's funny because I'm not sure how concerned I am. Okay. Um, because I the thing that is interesting, and I was talking with Rock about this in the office the day that they made the announcement about uh, Nico being transferred over to Italy. Um, originally, I kind of had the same thought, but then when I was talking with Rock and it was, okay, Klaus likes to play with two strikers, so you've got a Denron who came on late in the second half. So He was great. I, I don't mind that, and then they've added a little bit to hopefully reinforce the defense and make it a little better this year, and you've still got Berkey in goal, and they've got a good midfield. So I, I feel pretty good, but to your point of like, okay, Klaus did have serious health issues, Klaus needed a forward with him, in my opinion, up at the top to make things work. But if Klaus is out, I don't know if Sam and Denneran is kind of the same way. Okay. So maybe if Klaus goes out, maybe you just move to a one-striker kind of formation. So I, I'm not too concerned. Now, look, I, I'm not going to be able to tell you, like, I'm 100% locked in on their training camp going on in Florida, and I think they're going out to L.A. this weekend. But I, I don't have much concerns. I think they addressed some of the issues that they had on their back line. I do think they are going to be worse than they were last season, but I kind of expected that because it's going to be hard to repeat that kind of performance. I think they're still a playoff caliber team, but I, I'm not too worried about the Nico transfer because I think it made sense to sell off, quote-unquote, your third striker who, honestly, like if you can get money for him, take the money. That way you can allocate it to other places on your roster. Sure, um, and they have the best goalie in the league, so at a minimum you've, you've got that. I'm actually kind of surprised that he's still here. Yeah, I am too. I, I think next year will be the telling year because I'm sure he's on a two-year contract, yeah. like most guys are. Um, when his contract's up, we'll see. We'll see if he doesn't try to get back over to Europe. Uh, out of curiosity, I wanted to look up where St. Louis City SC is and the odds to to win the cup this year. So this is going to shock you. Miami is actually the favorite. Well, who do they plus have? 250 with Messi on the roster this year. Uh, St. Louis City SC is 37 to one. Uh, to win the cup this season that is the same odds as sporting kc it is roughly the middle of the pack when it comes to uh, mls teams this year i I don't see win totals just yet so um, those are not quite out but when it comes to where st louis city sc is on the the cup odds last year they were at the bottom of the barrel and this year they're at 37 to 1 would you that's a plus would you take those uh no no, I mostly because I mean those are pretty good odds, and maybe they end up hitting lightning in a bottle again and go on a deeper run. But I I think the roster is a little bit worse this year than it was last. I know you're a soccer guy, certainly more than I am. What is the thing that you are most excited about this year for St. Louis City SC? 
I, I would say looking at the back line, now that it's healthy to start the year, at least right now it is, to see how it plays. Because I you, I was one of those all year long where I said, man, I just don't know if this back line is going to be sustainable. Because they were being bailed out by Roman Berkey in a lot of games. And as much as I like Tim Parker, Tim Parker's a little bit slower in that center back position. So uh, the back line is the thing that I'm going to have my eye on. I think forward, midfield, they're going to be good. You know you've got the goalie. I thought the back line was an issue last year. I think that kind of came to a head in the playoffs. So I'll be curious to see what that looks like once we get into the season again. I just want to see AZ Jackson Jackson in a like full role. From start to finish, all season long, I want to see what that looks like. Um, he's playing with the, with the U.S. men's yeah, national team. Yeah, he's with the now. U.S. team. How about that? You love to see Superstar it. Superstar in the making. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, how many teams improve by 15 games year over year we'll get into that coming up in about 15 minutes or so by the way a little bit of news in the nfl the seahawks according to adam schefter are expected to name ravens defensive coordinator mike mcdonald as their new head coach t-bone quick reaction to the news mike mcdonald the former defense coordinator for the ravens after just i believe two seasons in uh baltimore as their dc going to be the next head coach of the seattle seahawks 36 years old, the new youngest coach in the NFL. I like going with a young mind. I, I do like that for a roster that seemed to have kind of grown a little bit stale. I, they needed help defensively, so I like the idea of bringing in a defensive mind, but now it gets really tough of now you got to go get the OC. got to go get the guy, and you got to work with Geno Smith and figure it out. So I, I don't mind the hire. I'm not sure they're going to be a playoff team next year, but I, I don't mind bringing him in, going with someone young. I love this. I think you, it's a great hire. You've been big on him. We were talking off air, and you're like, this is the guy on I, defense. So people love Mike McDonald. And I will say this. like, When you think about defensive coordinators, think about the best DCs in the NFL. Now think about how old they are. The vast majority of them have gray hair. Because most of the DCs in the NFL are older guys because they've seen everything. And it takes a long time to accumulate answers for whatever it is that you see in the NFL, right? Defense is about answering the problems that offenses present to you. And so when you see a guy like Mike McDonald who comes in and like really seems to have a keen eye for what it is that offenses are doing. And I think it's because he spent so much time at Michigan where he was able to solve a lot of the college offenses. Now he's bringing that to the NFL. He spent a lot of time before being at Michigan with Baltimore. So he's got a lot of experience in the NFL as well. I I think he's the kind of guy that could be a long-term fixture as a defensive-minded head coach. He also, according to every report, has a ton of energy. And I'm about energy givers. I think when you have a head coach, if you've got a guy in the room that doesn't bring a ton of energy every day, uh, you're going to be lacking, and you're you're dead upon arrival. It's one of the things that I do not like about Mike McCarthy. I don't think he has a ton of energy. Um, I, I think that this guy can bring that to Seattle, and if you didn't get somebody like that, coming from Pete Carroll to an energy sucker, whoo, that would have been a culture shock, to say the least. I think they've got a ton of problems defensively, and so I think it's going to be a longer-term rebuild than what maybe some are anticipating in Seattle, but they've got some corners, and that's a really good place to start if you've got a young defensive mind. Bring in some pass rush, get a couple of safeties, you're well on your way to having a really interesting defense in a division that you have to have good defense to be able to win when you're going up against the Rams with McVay and you're going up against Kyle Shanahan every year. You're not going to find an offensive mind that's going to go toe-to-toe with those guys. You're just not going to find it. 
So find the next best thing, which is the defensive mind that can try to go toe-to-toe with them. So I like it. I really like the hire for Seattle. I was worried about their search because it seemed like there was nothing out there on where they were going to go. Now there is one job left, and it is Washington. And we have no idea where they're going. I think they believed they had Ben Johnson ready to go, like signed, sealed, delivered. And then Ben Johnson woke up yesterday for some reason while they were in the air flying to Detroit to interview him and said, "Mm, I'm going to stay in Detroit. And now they've got to go back to square one, essentially. Friend of our show, Grant Paulson, who covers Washington sports out in Washington, uh, radio host, says that it looks like unless they reopen their search, their options are down to Dan Quinn, the D.C. of the Cowboys, Aaron Glenn, the D.C. of the Lions, or Anthony Weaver. I don't remember where Weaver's at, but... That's not an inspiring list if you're a Commanders fan. Reopen the list. Yeah. And hire Mike Vrabel. I, uh, the thing is, is like if I'm Mike Vrabel, I don't want that job. I mean, you have the number two overall pick. Go get your quarterback. Build the defense up a little bit. Be a culture guy and make it work. Uh, Anthony Weaver is an assistant on the Baltimore Ravens. Um, people like him. People think he's a good coach, but I... Mm. I don't know, man. Um, that is a that's a tough one. That's a tough look for Washington, especially with a new ownership, group. A new owner, where you're like, we're gonna make, go make our bold hire. We're gonna start anew here, and then it's like Dan Quinn, who just got bullied in the playoffs <laughs> after his defense was great all year, got flat out bullied by Jordan Love mm, in the tough. postseason at home. Whew. Tough look. Coming up next, more likely to happen here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. PK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns. I'm Brandon Kylie. 3143-999-646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for more likely to happen. I'll get us started today. Guys, more likely to end up in the Super Bowl next year, the Detroit Lions or the Baltimore Ravens. Which eliminated team from the conference championship game is more likely to represent their respective league in the Super Bowl next year? Oh man. I think I'll go I'll go Detroit Lions. I Hmm. I, I think they'll figure out the defense, and then a lot of their offensive weapons are still going to be in place. And keeping Ben Johnson is such a huge, huge get for them. So I think I'll go with Detroit here. I'm surprised by you. I didn't think you were going that route. Ooh, this is tough. Picking Baltimore would imply that Patrick Mahomes will actually fall next season. I'm going to actually say, however, the Ravens here, because I do need to see an encore from Detroit. I need to see how the Lions are going to actually react to having that target on their back. And for me, with Green Bay doing nothing but rising in the NFC North as soon as next season, we saw down the stretch of this past season, I really, I don't love right now the Lions' chances of replicating exactly what they did a few months ago. Baltimore still for one more season, at least in my opinion. I know BK, in a couple of years, they're really going to be in a tricky sort of cap situation I think for one more year with that talent base the talent is such that I like the Ravens to actually get through if a Joe Burrow maybe gets hot and you know runs past Mahomes next year. The following players are free agents from the Ravens this offseason Odell Beckham Jr. Gus Edwards 
Nelson Aguilar, Patrick Queen, Jadeveon Clowney, Geno Stone, who's a really good player for them on the back end, Justin Matabuke, who is one of the better defensive linemen in the NFL this year, and J.K. Dobbins, who obviously missed the entirety of this season, hurt. Uh, that's a significant list of free agents for the Baltimore Ravens. And when you look at what they're losing now, and Mike McDonald, who is an excellent defensive coordinator, and they're going through the more difficult path of the AFC relative to the NFC, I think this is a clear-cut, no doubt about it, no-brainer answer. It's the Detroit Lions. Keeping Ben Johnson was huge, dude. That defense was already bad. I'm not asking for a significant improvement next year. Just be passable. And then continue to improve on this offense where you have Laporta in year two. You have Amon Ross St. Brown continuing to get more comfortable within this offense. You have Jamison Williams, who started to come on by the end of the season as a deep threat for them. Jared Gott, like... Dude, this Detroit Lions team is in a really good spot for one more year. After that, it gets real difficult because they're probably going to resign and extend and overpay for Jared Goff. But for one more year, yeah, this thing's going to be back on the tracks. I think the Lions are much more likely to get to the Super Bowl next year than the Ravens. Also, I'm not taking at any point in time Lamar Jackson over Patrick Mahomes in a postseason game. And that's the thing is you have to hope Mahomes kind of falls out, and I think you have to hope Burrow falls out. And I'm not sold on the Packers as much as... Sure. Bradford is uh, being a team moving forward. T-Bone? Uh, more likely to break out this season for the St. Louis Cardinals. Mason Wynn or Victor Scott? For the cart, like big league? Yeah. Mason Wynn. I just don't think Victor Scott's going to get an opportunity. I like that. I like that a lot. But considering that we know Wynn is going to be there, that he already has the plus, the elite athleticism, the difference that he can make singularly on defense gives him absolutely the verdict in this case. You would love to see Scott, but I simply don't know until you get to the latter portion of the summer whether we're going to see him in St. Louis. So I think the only path that Scott would have to kind of win in this category, if you want to call it that, um, is if he comes up post all-star break say Edmund gets hurt and they don't trust Carlson as a center fielder yeah and he comes up and he just goes on a tour pace for two months or if he's you know stealing 40 bags down in the triple a and they decide you know what speed our matters. best opportunity in like I think some of this the underrated storyline what if Tommy Edmonds just not great offensively this year and they decide, you know what, okay, we're getting defense with either of them. Victor Scott, they have already said, is like gold glove caliber in center field right yeah. now if they wanted to play him there. So we're getting defense either way. We've got more speed on the bases with Victor Scott. We're not getting a lot of offense right now, as is with Tommy Edmond. Maybe we just go with Victor Scott and see if he can develop at the big league level. That's that's possible. That's a scenario as well where it, it doesn't even rely on Mason Wynn. It just relies on Tommy Edmonds and not be a great hitter. So I, I would say it's more likely it's Mason Wynn. I... I'm still a little skeptical of his bat playing here at the big league level, but I, I think because he's going to be here opening day, I would take him here. But I Scott's going to be interesting because I, I think you're right. If, if Edmund doesn't live up too offensively, I could see where they maybe try to bring him up here early. I think ideally everything goes right. You don't see him till September. He's a September call-up, and then he's used like in the postseason, if they're in the postseason, as a guy that basically is just – his role is just purely a pinch runner that comes on – Pinch runs late in the game and steals a bag for I'd love you. To see it. Does the contract change anything though? You just gave him two additional no. years, right? I mean, that is nothing at all. I mean, it's no. just as far as leash, I okay, okay. Yeah. It's, it's the same contract this year, and it's a totally tradable contract next year. It just makes the makes it so that way you don't have to go to arbitration. Yeah, it Fair. actually makes him more tradable. Fair enough. BK, Javon Foster, and Darius Robinson among those making waves during Senior Bowl practices. More likely to happen. Foster or D-Rob gets an NFL start in 2024 or Cody Schrader receives a carry in the regular season. I mean, I think both of them will be starters. So I'll say much more likely that 
Foster and Robinson end up as starters next year. I, I think there's a pretty decent chance that both of them end up as starters. There's a lot of buzz that Ennis Rakestraw is likely to be a first-round pick yeah. uh, this year as well. He's dealing with a groin injury that it hampered him at the end of this season. Uh, so he's not participating in the senior bowl practices. Otherwise, I think he would have dominated in these senior bowl practice practices. Chris Abrams drain weighed in at like a buck sixty-five. That ain't gonna help his draft status at all. Uh, he's a really good football player. He plays bigger than his size, but he's he's gonna have a tough time going ahead of like the fourth or fifth round because of his size. Teams just aren't gonna take a chance on that. I I would love to see somebody like the Chiefs take a chance on him and say, hey. We know you're a good football player. We know that the size is a problem. Let's see what you can do in the league. And because you're getting him so late, I, I think he's going to be well worth that opportunity. But uh, to answer the question directly, I think Darius Robinson's going to be like a day one plug and play starter. I think he might go in the first round. <laughs> he's getting real buzz. He's 6'5", 295, and runs well for his size and wears that weight like the Hulk. So, yeah, I, I think he's definitely going to be a starter. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I, Schrader's an interesting case because, like, I just don't know what to expect from him at the NFL level. I, I think he'll get drafted, but I'm not 100% sure of that. And even if he does, like, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to see him For sure. get carries. So, I, I agree with you. At worst, you get a camp invite and he does fit the profile of somebody who could be a core special teamer at sure, worst. Yeah. yeah, I think, he, like, I love Cody Schrader. Don't get me wrong. I think he'll probably be drafted, but it's hard to crack the lineup. And there's only so many carries to go around. All right, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line for more likely to happen. Guys, more likely to play in more games this season. Alec Burleson or Matt Carpenter? I'm going to remain optimistic. And I'm going to say that if this ends up being marked, there are serious problems. But I would say Alec Burleson. If, you, if they believe that he can develop into a really good hitter, you've got to get him playing time. And that means he's got to play more than Matt Carpenter. Hell, that might mean he needs to play more than Dylan Carlson. So I, I will say more likely Burleson plays more games. Marp, Marp should be in the modern role. This is actually the easiest one I think I have handled since being affiliated with the show in any capacity. It has to be Burleson. Carpenter knows the assignment, as the kids say. Now, whether he's deployed a bit more in the first couple of months of the season, that remains to be seen. But you have to think on upside alone, you need to see Burleson and you need to see him pretty consistently. Yeah, totally agree. It's got to be Burleson. All right, final one here. More likely to retire after the Super Bowl, Andy Reid or Travis Kelsey? I'll go first. I think it's Travis Kelsey. I, What is Andy Reid going to do if he's not coaching? Honestly. Go work in TV. What's he going to do? He's He only knows one thing. He has done one thing for his entire adult life. It's coach football. He's coached football since he was at the University of Missouri. So, yeah, he's he's going to continue coaching. He's coaching the best quarterback in the world right now. He's never had more fun than what he is doing right now. So he ain't going anywhere. Travis Kelsey has other stuff he could do. Like, Travis Kelsey is dating the most famous person in the world, and he has interests within movies and television. Who do you think would get movies and television ideas or opportunities right now? over Travis Kelsey like he's gonna have opportunities there he wants to do stuff like on SNL and uh he probably wants to be a part of a Sunday pregame show and he'll be offered every opportunity accordingly he and his brother have one of those most popular podcasts regardless of genre in all of podcasting right now so if they wanted to do something like the Manning brothers I bet you Amazon would give them an opportunity to do something like that so Kelsey's far more likely to retire. I don't think either of them will, but if we're saying which one's more likely, I think it's clearly Travis Kelsey by a wide margin. Yeah, that's where I am. I, I don't think either will, but if I had to say more likely, I would say it's 
Travis Kelsey. This was the first year in the regular season where I looked at him and I went, oh, man, you can tell he's he's kind of getting up there in football age yeah. where he looked slower, looked banged up. So I could see where he says, man, I like you said, I've got every opportunity outside of football. This might be the time for me to go. I don't think that's going to happen, but I, I could see where it's him. And to Andy Reid, like I saw, I think it was Mike Sandel wrote, like, if he has, I think it's a 12-win or 13-win season, which will be tough over like five straight years, he can like get to the Don Chula record. Like yep. he's in striking distance, and when you have the best quarterback in football, it it's not it's not out there to be thinking maybe I could become the all-time winningest head That's coach. That's an interesting way to look at it because if you look at what Bill Belichick is trying to do, he's trying to beat that Don Shula record. Like that's yeah. why he wants to get another job. Yeah. I think at this point, like if we did a different, more likely to happen, more likely to happen, you see Bill Belichick take over the Don Shula record or Andy Reid ends up passing up Bill Belichick. I think it's probably more likely at this point, given what the teams are telling us with them not hiring Bill Belichick, I think it's more likely that Andy Reid passes Bill. Andy needs 45 more wins to pass Bill Belichick on the all-time wins mark. Bill Belichick needs 27 to pass Don Shula. I think it's more likely that Andy gets it. See, I still think it's more likely it would be Belichick because I think this was the offseason where, in theory, where I think Belichick went, man, I can't get what I just want. I, I can't get player control. But is he going to be able to get 27 more wins? That would require three more good seasons. I think so because whoever's going whoever's to hire him is going to be a team in win-now mode. Like yeah. the Cowboys, the Eagles, the Bills, all these teams that we've mentioned that could fire their coach next season. I think Belichick, this was the year where he said, I can get what I want. And then he went, oh, you wait, to no, win 10 games no, I cannot. Or more, three straight seasons. I, I think so. I think it would be more likely okay. him over Andy Reid. No recency bias here. BK, I like the latter of your two scenarios. And bringing it full circle on Kelsey, we all know he has the world. He has the media world specifically at his fingertips. The last renaissance, if you will, the surge from the past couple of games, it has been nice. There still could be that much more left in the tank. But hey, maybe he wants to get into the color world as well. And then he can hop on over to Fox and bump Olsen down to number three on the depth chart. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll get into the junk drawer. But next, teams that improve by 15 games or more, it happens a lot more than you'd expect in Major League Baseball. What does that mean for the Cardinals as we head into 2024? We'll talk about it here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Cardinals win total going over would require them to win 15 more games this year than they won last year. Now that seems unlikely on the surface, right? It feels like, man, there's no way that happens very often across Major League Baseball. And yet, T-Bone, this is a question that you asked me yesterday, and so we looked into it. How often do teams actually win 15 more games than they won the year prior? Happens a lot more than you'd think. Yeah. A lot more than you'd think. It took me a little longer to do this research than I was anticipating. I figured, ah, I bet you there's like five or ten teams that have done this in the last decade. And so it'll take me a few minutes. And I'll put it together. We'll go. I'll look up the National League. T-Bone will look up the American League. And we'll go our merry ways. Nope. Uh-uh. In the last 15 years, so since 2010, there have been 10 different teams in the National League alone that had 13. Teen individual seasons in which they had improved their previous year's record by 15 wins. Now, there is a slight caveat to this. I did not include the 2020 season in this because it's fake. It didn't really exist. The Dodgers did not win a World Series. Let's pretend that never happened. 
And I didn't include the teams that went from like 50 wins to 65 wins. Because, yeah, that's a 15-win improvement. But let's be honest. <laughs> did, did you really improve? You're still the worst yeah. team in Major League Baseball. So I'm talking about teams that are going from like 70 to 85, basically. The type of stuff that we're talking about with the Cardinals. Ten different teams have done that. That is almost the entirety of the National League since 2010. In the American League, it's basically the same thing. Nine different teams have done this since 2010, and they've done it in 14 total seasons. So multiple teams have had a 15-win improvement multiple different times since 2010. So I say all of that to say this, Timon. While it does feel unrealistic for the Cardinals to improve by 15 wins basically overnight, especially when they didn't make drastic changes to the roster they bring in a couple of new starters they add a few new names to the bullpen but it's not like they went out there and did what the rangers did where they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to overhaul this roster and yet when i looked at the teams that did it i looked at some of the common element elements that they had for the most part at least i could speak to the national league i'll be curious if it was the same thing on the american league side of things a lot of it was a young player stepped up and a veteran that had an underwhelming season the year before went back to being a superstar the next year. And this under-the-radar, unheralded starting pitcher suddenly threw 180 innings and had like a 3-9 ERA. And that was enough for them to be able to withstand the, the regular season. Like These teams weren't overly impressive with their rosters for the most part. Now, there were some that, that are. I'll get into some of those. But... A lot of them kind of look like the 2024 Cardinals in the National League that have done this since 2010. Was the same true for you as you were looking up the American League? Yeah, it is pretty true for the American League. A lot of it is, and it's funny because I think a lot of it when I'm looking at the American League was you see the offense is kind of bounce back. You see a superstar that's either healthy or has a bounce back year like the 2014 Angels. What happened? Well, Albert Pujols was healthy. Uh, you look at the you look at all these other teams, you have a rookie that maybe steps up. Like you look at some of those athletic teams, you had Jonas Cespedes kind of arrives on the scene. The Astros have their young talent arrive on the scene. So I think a lot of it when looking at the American League was, okay, yeah, you either have a young player that really steps up and breaks out or you have a veteran get back to the spot where he should be. I, I didn't see much of a pitching scenario except for like maybe okay maybe one year you had a pitcher that wasn't healthy like the Red Sox did this and they didn't have John Lackey for a year and what happened then John Lester had a little bit of a down year but then they Lester kind of bounces back although it wasn't really a down year and John Lackey's healthy Uh, some of these teams though didn't really have much of rotations like I look at the 2015 Rangers they were one of these teams that did this where they jumped up in their win total and I look and I say okay what happened all right well Prince Fielder was healthy and has a bounce back year for them Yet then I look at their rotation, I go, there's like nobody in this rotation that's great. Cole Hamels was their big signing. He started 12 games. He got hurt. Mm-hmm. Hugh Darvish was out due to Tommy John surgery. Their rotation was kind of stuck together with toothpicks and bubble gum, and yet they still had a 15-1 improvement. So my big kind of takeaway when doing all this research was, hey, you're pitching long as it is like league average. You should be fine as long as you have your offensive pieces, your superstars play like superstars, or you have some young contribution that gets inserted into your lineup. So a few teams that stood out to me when I was looking at it from the National League side of things. In uh, 2012, the Washington Nationals went from 80 wins the year prior to 98 wins. How'd they do it? Well, they signed Gio uh, Gonzalez. They get Edwin Jackson, who had been on the Cardinals the previous season. Uh, Bryce Harper was a rookie. He becomes a superstar immediately. Immediately upon his arrival, just he's excellent in their lineup. Strasburg, it was his first full season healthy. And so you've got 
a front-end starting pitcher with Strasburg, who wasn't fully formed at this point, by the way, but was was really good. And you've got Bryce Harper as a rookie who, like, elevates the offense to a significant degree. And then they bolster the rotation with Geo and Edwin Jackson. Sounds kind of similar, right? Like, the corollary for Bryce Harper is, for you, Jordan Walker. And I'm not saying that Walker's going to be Bryce Harper, but you also have a better supporting cast than what the Washington Nationals had at the time. Edwin Jackson and Geo, could that be similar to what you have in your rotation? I think Geo's a little better than anything that you have currently, but not all that dissimilar. And then you're hoping that you can get from Sonny Gray what Strasburg was for the Nationals that year. Another team that I found to be a little interesting, the Milwaukee Brewers in 2010. Going into 2011, they went from a 77 to a 96 win team. Ryan Braun went from being really good to an MVP the next season. Grinky was traded to the Milwaukee Brewers that past offseason. He bolstered their front end of the rotation. And then they added Sean Markham. That was basically it. They didn't make other like huge changes to their, to their roster that year. That was enough. Ryan Braun is amazing. Grinky is the front end of starter that they were lacking. And Sean Markham was a really solid starter for them. Again, not all that dissimilar. If the Cardinals get an MVP caliber season out of one of Goldie or Arenado, suddenly they're kind of looking similar in terms of the additions. Grinky for them was what Sonny Gray is for you in terms of what you're getting in your rotation. And then Cincinnati, 2011-2012. They had Ryan Ludwig. They had Matt Latos. And then Cueto and Chapman have a breakout season. And that's it. And they go from 79 to 97 wins overnight. It happens and it's weird, guys. Baseball, sometimes it doesn't even make sense as to why. Pittsburgh, 2012 to 2013. They have Cole Marte and Jeff Locke as rookies. I can't believe I'm mentioning Jeff Locke as a significant (laughs) addition, but he was a big-time starter for them. Didn't do much after that. (laughs) Loriano and uh, Russell Morton were their big-time additions that offseason. So they bolster their rotation in a significant way with Cole Cole, Locke and Loriano. They have a new catcher in place, and Starling Marte is a significant piece for them offensively. They go from 79 to 94 wins just like that. It happens, and you can't explain why sometimes. And so for the Cardinals, the reason why I wanted to look into this, T-Bone, and I, I thought your question yesterday was interesting of how often does this actually happening of teams improving by 15 wins overnight. I would have assumed it was more rare than it actually is. And I would have assumed for most of the teams, it was either big-time injuries that hit them the year prior or big additions in the offseason. And for many of them, it was neither. Yeah. For many of them, it was, man, weird things happened. You had a couple of guys that had a down year. You add a few things. We're like, hey, our bullpen wasn't very good the year prior. We added some new names, and it started to stabilize. Or... Our rotation really kind of fell apart the year before. We add a few names, not even great ones, but a few names. One guy at the front end of the rotation, suddenly it all kind of clicked in place a little bit better. And sometimes it's as simple as they get off to a bad start. It never really got back on track, and they had a year from hell, and then the next year, they just didn't get off to a bad start. And things stabilize, and you're better for the long haul because of it. And then they add at their deadline instead of subtracting at the deadline, and that improves your record from August to September. So... I think the Cardinals are going to be pretty good this year. I don't think they're going to be excellent. I think they're lacking a number two starter. I think the offense has a chance to be great. But when I look at these teams that have had these massive improvements, I think the Cardinals fit in pretty well with a lot of these teams that we're looking at. I think their offseason fits into place with it. Yeah, I I do too. And I think a lot of it, which is funny because like we talk about the rotation and the lack of a number two, I think a lot of it is all just kind of 
circled by, okay, does Nolan Arnado and Paul Goldschmidt play like the guys that you're expecting him to be? Because both had down years last year. Worst slugging percentage in Paul Goldschmidt's career. Nolan Arnado dealt with back issues and wasn't the player he was in 2022. Those guys bounce back, or if one of them, let's say just one of them bounces back, yeah. but then you get like a Jordan Walker takes the next step, or maybe Gorman's healthy all year long and does hit 40 home runs. Okay, now that offense, there's that offense that we're talking about. And then if Sonny Gray pitches like the number one that they signed him to be, and then the rest of the rotation is just okay, I think you would be fine based on what I saw looking into all this. So I hear this a lot in the NFL. It's not said as much in in baseball, but I I think it is kind of true in baseball as well. I think the hardest thing to do in the NFL is to get from good to excellent. It's really hard to get from the place where the Dallas Cowboys have been for years to the place where the Chiefs and the 49ers are at right now, where you're competing for championships on a regular basis. Because that requires elevating the ceiling of your team. What the Cardinals are trying to do this year, though, isn't even necessarily that. It's elevating the floor. The Cardinals had the the floor bottom out for them last year. It just completely sunk, caved in, and they, they didn't know what to do. They had no real answers for any of the problems that were plaguing them. And I think that's a lot easier to fix than the next thing they're going to have to do, which is elevating the ceiling, right? That... That is a really difficult proposition and something that the Cardinals have shown no ability or willingness to do in recent seasons. And we'll talk about that at a later date. But what we're talking about is elevating the floor. And there's a lot of ways that they can and probably have done that this offseason. The easiest way is, man, defense. Like, defense is such an underrated piece of just becoming a really solid team. Not a great team. A really solid, like, 85-win team. The Milwaukee Brewers have been that for years, guys. The biggest difference between the Cardinals and the Brewers last year, it wasn't even starting rotation. It was defense. If you look at the fielding independent numbers for the pitching for the Brewers and the pitching for the Cardinals, they weren't all that dissimilar. The difference was what happened when the ball was put into play. When the ball was put into play, the Cardinals bobbled it all over the place and threw it to the wrong base and then dropped it seven different times and the runner advanced to third on a single. The Brewers caught it. And that's it. Like that that sometimes is the way that the game goes. And so for the Cardinals going into the season, I think they've improved that a lot. I think Walker's going to be better. I think Newt Bar should be healthy. Edmund settles his things down in center. Uh, Win is way better than anything you had last year at shortstop. And then at second, you just don't, don't have that rotating cast of characters the way that you did a year ago. So defensively, you should be much better. And the second way that you go about it is with your pitching. The bullpen has to be solid with less of an underbelly, more arms to throw at guys. You have that. And your rotation can't have terrible depth. If you have atrocious depth and you've got two different dudes that are starting fourth and fifth starters for you, for example, like they did last year, unfortunately for Adam Wainwright, who had one of the worst seasons in the history of Major League Baseball by a guy that threw as many innings as he did. It's not my opinion. That is by the numbers. You got no chance, man. You got no chance. Every fifth day that that guy's going out there on the mound. And the same thing was true for many of the young guys that they were throwing out there, like Drew Rom. You had no chance when that guy was on the mound at times last year. This year, you're going to have a chance when Kyle Gibson's on the mound. You're going to have a chance when Lance Lynn's out there. You're going to have a chance when Miles Michaelis is out there or Steven Matz or Sonny Gray. And so they have fixed the floor. The next thing they've got to do is the ceiling. But they fixed the easier part. And that's what gets you to 86, 87, 88 wins. And I think that defense conversation that you're talking about, I think that's how the Cardinals can convince themselves Michaelis can be there too. Because what happened with Miles Michaelis last year, we've talked about it. I mean, he's had, what, two really good years, 2018 and then 22, where it was like he was a below like 3-1 ERA guy. 
their hope is that he can get back to that. And how does he get back to that? I think it's the defense. I, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the teams that I found in this category, the 2013 Indians at the time, now the Guardians, they had breakout years from Kippins and Santana. The big thing, though, that they did was they added Michael Borton, a below-average offensive player, to help stabilize their outfield defense. Their outfield defense went from a minus 10 in defensive run saves to a plus 8 in defensive run saved. And what happened was... Uh, Abaldo Jimenez and Justin Masterson ERA dropped by like one and a half runs. Boom. It was unbelievable. They went from four five ERA guys to being in that three six to three three range, and all of a sudden you look at the, that Indians team, and it was a playoff team. They went to ninety two wins, and it wasn't because Masterson and Jimenez were missing bats. No, they had a good defense around them, and I think that's the hope. Not for a Sonny Gray because he's going to miss bats. That's a hope for a Kyle Gibson. Lance Lynn, if he keeps it in the yard, and uh, Miles Michaelis, is that our outfield defense is now better, and that in turn takes down some of the runs that were allowed last year. Do you take the over on the Cardinals over-under, which is at 85.5 right now? I would take it, but I don't feel good about it because yeah. I, I think they're like a 85-88 to 88 win team. I would take it because I think they're highly incentivized to add at the deadline this year as opposed to what it was last year, where like last year made sense for them to sell. This year, they're, they're, they have to be all in. They This cannot be another team where they're – going into like a retool at the deadline. You can't sell that anymore. Then it would be a rebuild. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we might be sleeping on Mason Wynn's offensive upside. We'll get into that in a little while, but coming up next, the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. T-Bone, I like to think I'm a pretty open and welcoming guy. If you're into something and it doesn't affect my life, cool. Do whatever it is that you want to do. As long as it doesn't affect me, why do I care? I could not care less what you do in your free time. If you go home, T-Bone, and do one thing or another, like, you're you're happy, you're healthy, we're good to go. Get here into work, we do our thing, you're prepared, we are good. But Austin Gale, a gentleman that works for The Ringer, posted on Twitter, and it genuinely bothers me. He listens to podcasts at two times speed. He watches YouTube at 1.5x speed and now watches Netflix at 1.5 times speed. And this is something that I just can't let stand. You're not a monster like this, are you? Do you no. guys listen to anything at two times speed or 1.5 times speed? I got to ask our audience. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. I love all of you. You are all wonderful people. None of you listen to us at expedient rates right like you're not going over to podcasting on your phone and be like hey i want to listen to bk and ferrario but two times the speed today i could not that is monster behavior yeah i could not do that i i need to hear like word for word at normal speed i can't do anything sped up now my uncle will and i've brought this up before in the junk drawer where if he's watching a movie and he doesn't like it He'll just kind of put it at one and a half speed so he can just see what happens at the end so that way he can talk about it. But even then, <laughs> I, I, also I, would, crazy I, would, I would sit through the movie mm. and just go, man, I made a bad choice, but or I'm going to sit off. through it. No, I'm going to sit through it. But yeah, I, I cannot do this. I, 
I'm one of those that it takes me a second to process stuff. So going one and a half times speed could not do it. Yeah, let the material breathe in exactly. a way. And this is this is going to sound very, very pretentious. But in a way, guys, we're performance artists, right? Some of the pregnant pauses, the different times at which you're going to pause, sometimes what you choose to emphasize or accentuate, all of that matters. And you're not getting the full experience by taking that measure. Somebody said lectures and speed are fair game, though, at 1.5 or 2 times speed. That is the one exception that I will make. I like oh, that. Oh, see, I could not do that. Oh, I, I'm fine with it. If you get to a place where you, like, really need to listen to it, then you slow it down. But if you're going to – you have to listen to the lecture because they see on the monitor, like, who actually watched the lectures and whatnot. They track all of that stuff nowadays. But if you're, if you're listening to, like, this show at 1.5 or 2 times speed – that could not be an enjoyable experience. No, I, I couldn't do a lecture at one and a half times because I would feel like I missed some stuff. Sometimes it's a matter of necessity. No, even then, like I would just plan things out better. Somebody... <laughs> Bradford, I love you. This is not a shot from me. From the 314. Oh, I know it. Here we go. Guys, can you imagine listening to Bradford at two times the speed? The man finishes every single syllable. It would be amazing. <laughs> Can we talk about my updates some more? <laughs> <laughs> Alliteration we'll get to one Central. We'll updates coming up at 1:30. But next, what are the biggest questions heading into the offseason for the two teams that were just eliminated from NFL contention? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Biggest questions heading into the offseason for the two teams that we just saw eliminated in the NFL. I'm talking the Ravens and the Detroit Lions. It's easy to get here once. It's really hard to get back there again. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns, I'm Brandon Kiley. T-Bone, of the two teams earlier, both you and I said that we think the Lions are more likely to get back to the championship game this time next year. And I think a lot of that is because of the questions that face the Baltimore Ravens. They're going into the offseason, and now you got to replace your young, hotshot defensive coordinator who really you you couldn't ask him to do anything more with that defense this year Patrick Queen unrestricted free agent you got Matabuke who is one of the better defensive linemen in the sport who made that defense go in a lot of ways he is a free agent as well Lamar Jackson is only going to get more and more expensive over the years Odell Beckham I understand he was not very good down the stretch but he was a decent piece of the offense at times this year. He's a UFA. You're starting running back. Gus Edwards, unrestricted free agent. T-Bone, when you look at the Ravens, you look at the Lions, you can pick which one you want to go to, but which one do you think has the bigger question going into the offseason? I think it is the Ravens because I, I think you just talked about some of those pieces they're going to be losing potentially in the offseason on defense. They just lost their defensive coordinator, which they have to replace. I, I mean, you got to not only – fix the defense that could be losing some significant pieces and hire a defensive coordinator. I don't think the cast around Lamar Jackson was very good this year. Like you mentioned Odell Be Beckham Jr. He wasn't very good. He had like a three-game spurt where I was glad I had him on my fantasy team. The rest of the year, he stunk. Mark Andrews is a good weapon to have. I don't think their running back room is anything that's to be sought after. Mm -hmm. Outside of having uh, Zay Flowers in the wide receiver room, nothing else is really there. And honestly, Flowers is more of a number two wide receiver. Maybe he develops into being a number one. But he's more of a number two. There are a ton of questions that they have to be asking themselves this offseason because you got to fix a defense. you got to find a way to add more weapons around Lamar. And then you have to hope that Lamar just plays well in the playoffs. So I, I think they're the team of these two that have bigger questions. Because when I look at Detroit, I just go, hey, you got your offensive coordinator still. 
I think you're probably going to have your defensive coordinator still. How do you just improve your secondary? Because that's their biggest question and mark They don't for me. have a lot of places where they can borrow from. Like, you go into the offseason, and people will talk about how the cap isn't real, the cap is fake, the cap is fake, the cap is fake. And there's there's some teams where that almost becomes true for, where they can pull from salary from certain guys and push it down the road. Like, the Saints seem to do this every year, right? They're, where they're $83 million over right now. The Saints? Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're going to credit card that up. They're going to say, you know what? No, we'll pay for this later. We'll pay for this later. We'll pay for this later. And they find a way to make it work every season. And the Ravens aren't in, like, a bad spot when it comes to their salary cap. They're going into the offseason with about $14 million to spend. That's fine. You could make a couple of moves that way. Here's the problem. They have guys that will be on their cap sheet for next year at, like, for example, $11 million for Odell Beckham Jr. that aren't on the team because they said this is our all-in season. 2024 was the year for them. They decided to do what they call void years on certain contracts where Odell Beckham Jr. next season is going to be on the books for about $4 million bucks, despite him not playing for them. Tom Brady did this with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers where he was on the books for a certain amount of money so they could make it cheaper while he was with them to win as many games as possible while he was there while understanding, yeah, it's going to hurt down the road. So the Ravens did that, and now they're going to pay the piper for it. And it's not a huge deal the way that it is for the Saints, for example, but they don't have a lot of places where they can gain a bunch of money. So while they're losing like a Patrick Queen, for example, they don't really have a way to replace him. You can't go back to the market to get a 70% version of Patrick Queen because that guy probably cost you six, seven, eight million bucks on a one-year deal, and they can't really do those deals right now given their cap situation. Yeah, they have to almost look at like uh... – draft the player that's what they have yeah, to do everything has to come via the draft this offseason yeah and, and when you look at like the lions for example they have 58 million dollars in cap going into the offseason they, they are in a really interesting situation like they could go into this offseason and say hey whoever the chiefs don't resign between legeria sneed and chris jones they're a line yeah they should do that this offseason like they should go get a number one corner or a number one edge rusher like Matabuke, if he actually hits the free agent market, he should be on their wish list. Like, bring in a guy that can pair with uh, Aiden Hutchinson, and let's get a, a tag team on the defensive line that can really get after the quarterback for them. They need desperately a legitimate number one corner. You know how has terrible cap issues right now? I haven't looked at if they could make this work or not, but the Miami Dolphins are in a horrible cap situation going into this offseason. I haven't looked at exactly what it would look like, but... I will here in a moment. I wonder if they could end up trading Jalen Ramsey. And if they could, maybe that's somebody that the Lions would look to acquire. Like, the questions for the Ravens are hard to answer. The questions for the Lions are, where do you want to look? Because there's answers aplenty. Yeah. For how many teams has Jalen Ramsey played now? But I agree with you, Tanner, and specifically from the Ravens' standpoint now, when you look into or look at just how many of the moves are going to have to come internally through the draft with so many individuals conceivably leaving, like in Edwards, Dobbins in the backfield, but you're on the hook, so to speak, for so many of those contracts. Whereas, BK, you're right, with Detroit, the flexibility there, the financial flexibility exists, and what is the one primary area that you must address? You know 
know that your offensive continuity now, especially with Johnson returning, that is going to remain. But you can go out and make a big splash or several on the defensive side. Yeah, they could trade Jalen Ramsey. That's what they should do. I say I thought he didn't have a contract that was that hard to move. The Lions should trade for Jalen Ramsey. Yeah. That should be the the number one priority going into the offseason is say, hey, let's go get us a number one corner because, I mean, all of us watched them this postseason. They, they had serious issues in the secondary. And if they patch that up, and you get another defensive lineman in there and you say, okay, so we got Jalen Ramsey over there. We got, let's say it's uh, Chris Jones. Chris Jones is our new defensive tackle and he's going to be next to Aiden Hutchinson. You go into next season, like there will be people that are saying that the Detroit Lions are the favorite to come out of the NFC. It will be laughable that we had a conversation today about the Detroit Lions versus the Baltimore Ravens, who's more likely to get back here next year. It will be a foregone conclusion that the Detroit Lions will be getting back to where they were this season because they have improved from the team that they were this year. And this year will have been seen as the starting point for what is now a two to three year run that they're about to go on as opposed to the end point of what was previously seen as okay, we're building to 2024. And what could that do for them in the division alone when you're going up against the likes of a Moore, a Jefferson, Reed, et cetera, so many times during the season that can yeah. only increase your chances? Yeah, 100%. They are going to be a fun team to watch because they are in that perfect spot where they, they know what they need. You know, there are some times where you look at a team and you go, okay, like they were there. Yeah, they won 10 wins. Like I think back to the Titans when they won whatever. It was like 13 when they had like Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill. You look at that team and you go, what? How did they win 13? I saw how the Lions won their games, and I saw clearly what their holes were, and it's easy for them to kind of fix it in free agency. Where it gets tough is when you're the Baltimore Ravens, and sure, you can fix it in the draft. We've seen teams have excellent drafts. The Rams this year said, like, hey, this is the year we're going to, like, just take the year off, and we're going to go real young. And it worked out. They made the playoffs. Like, that defense outside of Aaron Donald was a whole bunch of kids, and they played really well. But they drafted well. You could go into a draft and the Ravens can say, okay, we think these guys can fix our problems. And you could miss on every single one of those guys. And all of a sudden you look at it and you go, oh, crap, what do we do? This is what the way we had to go about it. And we can't really replace things because we have such a low cap availability. The, the Lions remind me a little bit of that first 49ers team that made it to the Super Bowl with Jimmy Garoppolo as the starting quarterback. You, you remember that? where they had a bunch of really good weapons around Jimmy G, like George Kittle, Debo Samuel. At the time, it was Emmanuel Sanders who was their number two wide receiver. Uh, their their running game was excellent because, of course, it is. Whenever you've got Kyle Shanahan, they had a really good offensive line. Like They just had talent all over the place. Yeah. And at the time, it was like, okay, now let's keep adding to this. And then they go to the free agent market, and they keep adding and adding and adding because at the time, they had a quarterback that was on a super reasonable contract with Jimmy Garoppolo because they front-loaded it and they drafted so incredibly well at the front end of that as well. Well, now we're talking about adding a bunch of like big-time pieces to the puzzle. That That's where the lines are right now. And if they do this right, much like where the 49ers are, where they had Jimmy G and now they've got a fine quarterback in Brock Purdy, the 17th best quarterback in the league. Don't get mad at me. That's the truth. Go do the numbers if you want to. Go look at it yourself. He's better than a lot of the guys that you're going to tell me he's better than. No, he's not better than Dak Prescott. No, he's not better than Trevor Lawrence. No, he's not better than Justin Herbert. Those guys are all better than Brock Purdy. But if you look at the way that the 49ers have built, that's what the Lions could could be building as well. And it's a hard way to go about it, but they've already got here. And now it's about continuing to stay atop the mountain and trying to get back here once again next year to do that. They're, they're going to have to make some significant additions. I, I think the Ravens have a much harder path. Harder conference, bigger questions to answer, fewer resources to go out there and do that with. And now you've got a quarterback who 
his worst game in each of the last four seasons in which he has finished has come in the last game yeah. where they lost. That's a hard pill to swallow, man. And trying to overcome that is not an easy thing to do. Coming up in 15 minutes, Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues. But next, we might be sleeping on the upside for Mason Wynn. At least one national analyst sees 10 to 15 home run upside, Ooh. and he compared him to a former Cardinal. We'll tell you who coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I absolutely love Mason Wynn. This is a extreme competitor, and he does not scare. Um, he, he got knocked around a little bit offensively, and he handled it for his age. He handled it so well. When you have that type of competitive nature, and you don't scare, and you continue to just attack the way Mason does, uh, you have a good player on your hands. Ollie Marmel is not the only one that loves Mason Wynn. ESPN.com's Kylie McDaniel wrote up his top 100 prospects earlier today in Major League Baseball. He had Mason Wynn at number 20 on that list. He wrote the following. Wynn is tracking like the opening day starter for the St. Louis Cardinals with a distinct or yeah, distinct rookie of the year chance. Look for a 280 hitter with 15 to 18 home runs value on the bases and above average defense at shortstop a match for peak Raphael for call down the road is not a crazy comparison well alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns I'm Brandon Kylie that is quite the write-up 280 hitter 15 to 18 home runs value on the bases above average defense Raphael for call is the comp dude if that is who Mason Wynn becomes at the major league level, we have severely underestimated the kind of value that that would have for the St. Louis Cardinals. Like, that would be my favorite baseball player. <laughs> I, I, I love guys that are super athletic with value defensively, that put the ball in play, don't strike out a lot, and have a little bit of pop. Apparently, that's Mason Wynn, according to Kylie McDaniel. And you and I both love Kylie McDaniel. I think he does a really good job with this stuff. I think he's been right, especially on the Cardinals prospects. More often than not, I don't think he oversells a lot of the guys the way that maybe the team does sometimes to the media. If this is who Mason Wynn is, and he gets there quicker than expected, T-Bone, what does that do for your anticipation of the 2024 Cardinals? It tells me they're going to have the best offense in baseball. Like As much as we hear Anthony Stalt, that quote that we played earlier about Stalt saying, hey, this is in the Braves lineup, I mean, if Mason Wynn ends up being a guy that can play like Rafael for call, and he's hitting eighth, think about your lineup for a moment there, where you've got a great balance of guys that get on base and hit for average in a Donovan and a Newbar. You've got the all-around hitters in a Goldschmidt and a Nolan Arenado. you got the guy that can just hit a baseball farther than anybody else in Nolan Gorman to hit those tape shots. Jordan Walker, potentially an all-around hitter. Like, this offense all of a sudden doesn't have, like, two spots. Like, the way I've thought about the offseason all, all year long is, hey, that 8-9 spot, Wynn and Edmund, probably below league average players. But you're getting elite defense. But if Mason Wynn all of a sudden starts to be a 280 hitter that has 10, 15 home run power at the bottom of the order, holy crap, you're talking about a lineup that is deep one through eight. So I, I think if he hits this ceiling, and look, I, I'm still a little skeptical if his bat's going to get to that level here at the major sure. league level, but if he gets to that ceiling, this is going to be one of the deepest offenses in major league baseball with, in theory, a really good defensive duo up the middle when we talk about defense up the middle Contreras a little shaky but when I think gold glove caliber 
Gorman, I think, a pretty good defensive second baseman. Donovan, good second baseman. And then Tommy Evan, who could be a gold glove caliber center fielder. Talk about going from Andrelton Simmons, maybe to Raphael Fercal. I will dig that. I will go with it. And let's also spin it forward a little more, too, gentlemen, beyond just 2024 and in the years to come. If you have win, if you have somebody like that maybe develop into a 260-plus hitter in the range of 280, think about the way in which that could lengthen your lineup down the road if you have win hitting maybe bottom half yet, along with a conceivable leadoff threat in a Victor Scott. How exciting is that when you're not even talking about the big boppers? Just think about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it helps a lot, and it changes the outlook if you have the pitching, but we'll get to that at a later date. Um, the, the other shortstops that have had similar types of seasons to what he's talking about here, 280 hitter, 15 home runs, 15 stolen bases, because I think that's kind of what you have to get to to have a real value on the bases. It's like 15-plus stolen bases, right? So 280-hitter, 15 home runs, 15 stolen bases. And this is not taking into account any of the defense. These are the shortstops that have done that in the last 20 years. Xander Bogarts, Wander Franco, Trey Turner, Fernando Tatis Jr., Tim Anderson, Bo Bichette, Trevor Story, Francisco Lindor, Ahmed Rosario, Elvis Andrews, uh, Hanley Ramirez, Derek Jeter, Troy Tulowitzki, Jose Reyes, Jimmy Rollins, Rafael Fakal, who did it a couple of times, uh, Felipe Lopez, Alex Rodriguez, Nomar Gassiapara, Orlando Cabrera, and Angel Baroa, who had one really great season with the I Royals do not that recognize I remember from 2003, and nobody in our audience will, and then became a nobody immediately thereafter. Um, but, like, that's a who's who of shortstops of the last 20 years. I just read you a list of, like, I was reading you a specific list of statistics. I could have also just said, hey, let me go through a list of the best shortstops of the last 20 years. And it, I probably wouldn't have missed very many players on that list. That's what we're talking about here is him becoming a guy that puts you in the category with the who's who in Major League Baseball. Like The teams that matter across the sport have a player like Mason Wynn somewhere in their lineup. And if you don't, it becomes kind of difficult to compete at a meaningful level. He's a guy that unlocks everything because if you have your shortstop in place and you have an outfielder and Jordan Walker in place, and this goes back to Bradford's point of like what the future looks like for you. And now you start thinking about, okay, up the middle as well. All right. So Victor Scott might be your future center fielder. They seem to genuinely believe Yvonne Herrera is their future at catcher. Okay. Maybe you've got that internally as well. So you got catcher, shortstop, center field, potentially the entire outfield, depending on how things go this year with Newt Barr and Walker. All right, now you're really building something. And regardless of what happens with Paul Goldschmidt this this season, if they decide not to bring him back, well, now you've got money available. Yeah. If they decide to bring him back, okay, cool. We've got a, a core roster that we can continue to build around. And now it gets back to the pitching side of things. And T-Bone, somebody on our text line asked, guys, what about their write-up on... Um, the other significant pro- uh, prospect that is on the Cardinals' radar right now, which is Tinkins. This is not going to be as in- encouraging for you as a Cardinals fan. So he's ranked as the 49th overall prospect in Major League Baseball, according to Kylie good. McDaniel, which is nice. We start with the headline. Potential third starter, but might not, might not have a true plus pitch. So his summary is as follows. Tink Hintz has four above-average pitches and starter command. He is more the sum of the parts with easy operation that allows for scouts to imagine more coming than a pitcher with overwhelming stuff, even though he sits 94 to 97. 
Guys, his write-up sounds a lot to me like Marcus Stroman. In terms of the, the on-field, who he is as a pitcher. Not overwhelming stuff. Pretty good overall, though. Smaller in stature, which is Tinkins, relative to Marcus Stroman. Some similarities in that regard as well. Easy thrower. Like, all of that potential third starter on a legitimate staff. That all sounds to me like a Marcus Stroman type of a starter, which is nice. You want starters like that, especially cost-controlled, developed from within starters. The problem for the Cardinals is that they are counting on him more than just about anybody else to be a front-end starting pitcher. And if they don't have that coming, we are going to continue to have the same conversations about the pitching next year and the year after that 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 that we had going into this season. Coming up next, Chris Carber, the voice of the Blues here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Go out to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, coming off of the Blues one to nothing shutout loss last night at home, going into the All Star break. That one coming at the hands of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Curbs, we talked about this a little bit earlier today and gave our thoughts on the loss. I am curious, yours coming off of a tough one at home like that, going into a break. You know what, I, uh, Brandon, I think that like. Uh, this one's a hard one to explain. It, it really is. Uh, th- th- I understand the athlete. I understand the schedule. I understand the process. I understand the human aspect of it. You know, but you are a team that is uh, have moved yourself with a great five-game win streak into a playoff spot, and you have that kind of game. The biggest difference, you know, between the really good teams and the teams that have to fight for their scraps, and the Blues are one of those fight-for-your-scraps teams right now, is you don't cough up those games like they've done. And when you look at the fact that they've gone 0-2 against Columbus, they lost to San Jose, you know, they've, they've laid some eggs against some, some pretty weak teams from a talent standpoint, and this one just comes down to effort. If, if you lose that game last night to Columbus, one nothing, but Merzlikens had to stand on his head, right, and you pumped him with 35 shots on goal, or maybe you lose it 2-1 to one or even 3-1, to one, Right, but but there was there was a much more focused effort in that game. It's a very different feel than this one. Nine shots on goal it, through the first two periods against that team is is frankly really hard to explain. So big picture, you don't let it bother you too much. You're right in the heart of things going into the final 33 games. Maybe tonight you get bumped out of that playoff spot. Maybe you keep it. Either way, you're gonna lose some ground to one of those two teams, uh, L.A. or Nashville. But the reality of it is is uh, you could have had two more points last night. And, and in all honesty, should have had two more points last night. Yeah, and Curves, I'm glad you mentioned their shot total because though they had just won five in a row and they're winners of five of the last six, in their last four games at five on five, they have not generated 20 shots on goal. What are you seeing from the Blues at five on five and kind of their struggle to get the puck on net? Uh, I, I think it's a willingness to shoot the puck, you know. And, and to be honest with you, you got it. Part of this is I don't. I haven't. I haven't gotten into with Drew Bannister yet on this part of things philosophically with him just being 21 games in, you know. But with Craig Berube, it he didn't care about shot totals, 
And a lot of coaches now in the National Hockey League don't really care about, well, we've got to average 30 shots on goal, uh, you know, to get to where we want to go. They care about the quality of chances. The challenge that the Blues seem to have, from my point of view, is they're passing up chances to put the puck on the net and create some chaos in front of the goal. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about, Tanner, uh, net front presence, right? Got to get the dirty areas. You got to stop and start on the crease. You got to make sure that you're there for rebounds. Well, part of the issue is you got to get the puck there. Because if the puck stays on the outside, it's hard for a guy to stay along the wing, or in front of the net, rather, when he's got to get to the boards to add support. So it's there's a yin and a yang to it. But when I look at the Colorado Avalanche, when I look at the way the Boston Bruins can funnel shots to the net, I look at the, the chaos that Dallas creates and some of these other teams. Winnipeg still does it as good as anybody in the league. They just put the puck to the net, put big bodies going there and say, try and stop us. Um, I think somewhere they've got to get back to funneling more pucks to the net and then working on retrieval rather than looking for the best opportunity available and then potentially missing opportunities. Curbs, do you know where the Blues rank currently in rebound shots and rebound goals on the season? Uh, I I have no idea where they rank, but I, you guess? I cannot imagine it's I cannot imagine it's good. I got I'd have to say bottom six or seven. Yeah, they're they're thirtieth uh, in rebound shots and dead last in rebound goals so far this year. They have six rebound goals at five on five on the season. Uh, the next worst team is Toronto, which makes sense. They've got shooters that are shooting from the outside. Uh, the Blues have six rebound goals at five on five so far this year. Yeah, so. Th- th- it's a fascinating discussion, really, because in one sense you're saying they need more scoring, right? And yet the Blues and the Dallas Stars are the only two teams in the league that have six players with 13 or more goals. They just don't have that guy pushing 40 goals, right? Um, then at the same time, one of the big areas, and Drew Bannister focused on this with the power play, and I think that's why the power play clearly has been 25% under him, is net front. They put Jake Neighbors on the one unit. He put Oscar Sundquist on the other unit. And they said, you guys go plant some flowers right in front of the crease, and we'll find the puck for you. And it's worked. And both those guys have been terrific there. One of the key things that is still critical for this team when it comes to habit changing is stopping at the net. There's been a handful of opportunities over the last number of games where there have been rebounds and nobody is in position to get them. They, you know, you can call them flybys. Uh, you can call them circles where, you know, a guy will drive the net, but then they, they, you know, they circle out rather than just throw on the brakes and stop right there. Alexi Toropchenko, Jake Neighbors, Oscar Sundquist are probably your top three guys on this hockey team that go and stop right at the front of the net, and they'll find rebounds because of it. So I'm not at all surprised, to be honest with you, uh, with, with that number, Brandon, just simply because of the – fact that the Blues don't stop there very often to, to wait for the play to develop and, and battle in front. Yeah, it's just like, it has to be one or the other to your point, Curves, where like, okay, if you're not going to get a high number of shots, that that's fine, as long as you're getting them 
in the areas where they're more likely to convert into goals. And at least according to one site, moneypuck.com, the, the Blues are the third worst team this year at high danger shots for, as we just talked about. They, they don't create rebound opportunities or they haven't at least converted them into shots as rebounds. Like They're not doing any of it. And when you have none of these things that are going for you at five on five, it becomes really, really difficult to sustain offense that way. And we saw the results of that, unfortunately, uh, last night. Curves, final question that I've got for you before we get you out of here. That that was the final game that we're going to see this team play for the next couple of weeks. When you look back at what is essentially the first half of the season, they're 26-21-2. We probably couldn't ask for much more than that at this point in the regular season. How, how would you assess what we've seen from this version of the St. Louis Blues team at this point in the season? Uh... Like in comparison to last year's, or just just in general this year? I would say relative to expectations, right? Because I don't think anybody was expecting okay. this team to be a Stanley Cup contender necessarily. That the general manager came out and said, "Hey, we're we're in a retool. We're talking about what the LA Kings did, which puts a timeline of like three years or so before they're really contending." And yet, right now, they're in a playoff spot. They're five games above 500 going into the All Star break, and it. It kind of feels empty given what happened last night, but I, I, it's kind of hard for me not to be happy about where the record is at least. So, so I touched on this a little bit on curbside reaction. Um, I, I go, I, it, it, it's a fantastic question right now because I, and I think it's a fair one if you're a fan to ask because it also keeps you with a dose of reality. So first off, what are the expectations? I think Doug Armstrong laid the expectations out pretty clearly at the beginning of this season. He, he was very honest when he said, I don't think that we are a top, a top third team in the league. I don't believe we're a bottom third team in the league. I believe we're right in that middle third, and if things go well, I would hope that we are in, that top, in the top level of that middle third, which has you getting a playoff spot or pushing for it. And if you look where the team is at 49 games, right exactly where he would expect to be. If you're talking about being a wild-card team, you're in the top part of that middle third right there. So to me, that's a that's a pretty good spot. I believe that if you're going to make the playoffs, they had to be right about five games over 500 at the midway point of the season, which is not the all-star break. It was seven games ago. They weren't there. Now they've gotten there maybe seven games late. The benefit is the other teams around them haven't been great, and so the Blues are right in the thick of things. So from a big-picture standpoint, I think if you're a Blues fan, knowing that this is a team in transition, knowing that I don't think expectations were really high because you're filling holes, waiting for the Snuggaroos and the Dvorskis and the next wave to come up, uh, the Bulldukes, whatever, uh, I think the fact that you're seeing a pretty competitive product most nights is good. The fact that they're in the playoff hunt, which means over the next 14 games before the trade deadline, they will be playing meaningful games. That's extremely important for development as well. And I think the fact that you have, I still think, one of the best goalies in the league when it comes to clutch performances, and that's Jordan Bennington, and a terrific backup that's growing very well in his role in Joel Hofer, I think the Blues have goaltending every single night that's going to keep you in the game. So I, I think all in all, despite the frustration of last night and a couple losses this year, maybe that last one to Washington, the San Jose game, are great examples, uh, I think all in all, you've got to be pretty satisfied and say the team is just about where you would expect it to be. I don't think they've overperformed, but I also think uh, the inconsistencies come with the transition, 
And so that's not much of a surprise. I, I think you've got to be pretty happy with where you're at right now. I tend to agree with you, Curbs. It, it feels weird to say that because of, again, what, what we saw last night and – you don't want to be thrilled with the fact that you're, you know, bottom of the wild card standings. But given what the team was expected to do, I, I think that's kind of where they should be right now. And uh, it wasn't a great start to the season either, so it was tough to be able to get here. Curbs, we appreciate the time as always, man. He's Chris Kerber, the voice of the Blues, getting a couple of weeks off, well-deserved uh, vacation. You and the family going anywhere while, while you're off, Curbs? Uh, I am in the car right now driving down to Louisville to visit Gracie for two days. And then... Uh... We're gonna do a. We're gonna MC a fundraising gala for Rossman School back home on Saturday, and then gonna do a college visit with Gabby to UMKC next week. So, uh, not not anything in terms of thrilling trips, but as a dad, I don't know that it gets any better for me. So I'm I'm, I'm happy. It'll be a great few days off. While you're out in KC, check out one of the new spots. Meet Mitch. M E A T Mitch. Uh, it's worth worth your time. And then while you're in Louisville, of course, right. uh, enjoy enjoy the bourbon out there, man. We'll still we'll talk to you again soon, Curbs. All right, guys. Talk to you next week. Have you a great it. week. That's Chris Kerber, voice of the Blues, joining us as he does each and every Wednesday here on BK and Ferraris. We'll deserve time off over the next couple of weeks for him as the Blues are heading in to the All-Star break. I, I have a tough time being upset about where the Blues are, and this is one of the things that I, I try to, like, Keep in the back of my mind as we're having conversations about where the team is, the frustration of of how they're playing and all of that is like, okay, yes, I'm mad at the game that happened last night. And also, man, what does it mean in the big picture? Like, I hate what they did last night because that felt indicative of something larger where it's like, man, you, you didn't show up. All you had to yeah. do was show up and try. And like, it's like taking the ACT and not putting your name on it. I'm like, just, dude, you, you did all the hard part. <laughs> Now you just got to put your name on it. You took the test, and the, the Blues forgot to put their name on the test by beating the Columbus Blue Jackets heading into the All-Star break. Man, you, you should have had six in a row. You should be feeling great going into the All-Star break, and instead you, you feel like crap because you barely put up 20 shots on net against the worst team in the NHL, the fewest shots on net against Columbus all season long. That That's what feels crummy about it heading into this All-Star break. Yeah, I'm 100% with you, and I, I think, Curbs, I think you were right on like the expectation. It, it feels... I think you can't be disappointed in where they're at. And I, I would add this, too. Not just looking at the standings. What was one of their biggest issues last year? It was all the Valleys. They've really brought yeah. up the Valleys. I think their longest losing streak is a three-game losing streak. I, I've been impressed by that. Under because Bannister, I could, it is. It was, yeah. The four-game losing streak is what got pretty That's fired. right, four. Sorry. But I... I I see that, and I go, okay, they're avoiding those constant valleys of constantly going through those losing streaks. And though that's why I've been frustrated a lot this year, watching them game by game, I, I can't be too disappointed because because they haven't gone through that massive losing streak, it allowed them to still kind of hang around to where when they go on the winning streak that we just saw, boom, they're back into the playoff picture. He's T-Bone, that's Bradford on BK. We'll hit the BK and Ferrario Rewind coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on PK and Ferrario brought to you by Gloria Loom, your home sold guaranteed realty. Selling your home begins at GloriaHasTheBuyers.com. 
alongside Tanner Hendrickson and Bradford Bruns. I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check out the podcast page, 101ESPN.com and the free 101 ESPN app. It is all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. T-Bone, the Senior Bowl is on right now. We're watching that on the screen. There's a lot of buzz down there for Missouri defensive lineman Darius Robinson. People are getting very excited about what he could be at the NFL level. Level, excuse me. Dane Brugler, who's one of the top NFL draft analysts in the country, he works for the Athletic, just tweeted out, the whispers among scouts get a little louder every single time that Missouri defensive end Darius Robinson takes a rep during one-on-ones. He's winning right now with his get-off power and technique. His stock is rising. Uh, he is a guy that is absolutely worth monitoring. There's going to be a bunch of NFL draft content that's heading your way over the next few weeks. Yesterday, I was reading over on NFL.com, Daniel Jeremiah put out his top 50. Caleb Williams, as expected, was number one. Marvin Harrison Jr., number two. Roma Dunze, the guy that dominated for Washington, the wide receiver that made Michael Penix Jr. look like a top five pick. He's the number three player on this list. Drake May, who nobody's ever watched, but he's a really good quarterback, Rumor apparently, from good. North Carolina. <laughs> he's at number four on this list. Number five is Jaden Daniels, the guy that single-handedly beat Missouri. And I'm not all the way there, but my, like, half-baked take, if you will, I think I might take Jaden Daniels number one this year. Last year, I said I would do Anthony Richardson number one, and I would go C.J. Stroud number two. And I got laughed at because obviously you got to take Bryce Young, the little petite guy. You got to take him with the number one overall pick. He's Tanner's size, but 10 pounds lighter, but he's got to be the number one pick. I think Jaden Daniels might be, my, might be my guy this year. That was a depressing one to witness in Columbia, BK. Just depressing. Yeah. I, I'm fascinated. He's special, man. I'm fascinated to see where he goes because we've talked about it. His like upside is like Lamar Jackson 2.0. Yep. yep. But a better arm. Yeah, exactly. So think about that for a second. Think about what you saw this weekend in, in Baltimore. Now imagine about, with a slightly about better we, arm. How about we think about Lamar in the regular season? <laughs> Fair enough. For T-Bone and Bradford, I'm BK. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. The Fast Lane's coming up next. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.